have two words for you, predator drones. You will never see it coming. I think I'm joking. Drones are being used in drone strikes, and I support that entirely and feel the president was right. There's a reason why we shouldn't be using drones. It's because we don't just take out the target. We take out a lot of innocent civilians in these countries where these drones attack. This is basically blowing up in our faces. We've seen the blowback all across the Middle East. What if our foreign policy of the past century is deeply flawed and has not served our national security interests? Free I hate categories. Categories are okay if you're going to grocery store. But for me, the categories screwed a lot of people up. Make everything metal. Blacker than the black is black. Times infinity. Thought Radio, San Diego's source for heavy metal and other genres that are ignored by mainstream radio. San Diego's only libertarian talk show in a conservative-dominated market. More hard-hitting journalism than even the professionals themselves. Free Thought Radio. Free speech. Free expression. And free snowball! Only on KKSM Oceanside AM 1320. The Radio Revolution. Podcast airing on LRN.FM, the Liberty Radio Network. As it applies to you and me, our country isn't free. Welcome everybody to another week of Free Thought Radio, freethoughtmedia.org and facebook.com slash freethoughtradio. Airing here live every Monday, 6 to 9 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on KKSM AM 1320, The Radio Revolution, uh, which is in San Diego, California. You can find it at facebook.com slash KKSM radio. Also podcasting uh, on lrn.fm, which is the Liberty Radio Network, facebook.lrn.fm, and uh, also on iTunes if you search for Free Thought and look for Free Thought AAC. You can find previous podcasts including last week I had uh, members of the Veterans for Peace and they're uh, giving out sleeping bags to homeless uh, of the San Diego. And a uh, week before that I had Ben Swan, Emmy-winning investigative journalist, and Daniel Johnson of uh, People Against the National Defense Authorization Act. But tonight uh, my first guest for this hour uh, really wants to uh, dispel the myths about the faith of Islam and also how it relates to the philosophy of libertarianism, voluntarism, anarchism, agorism, you know, the, all the, the many different swatches of, of libertarianism. If you had a color swatches, there you'd find all the different types of libertarianism, uh, all based on pretty much voluntary interaction between uh, consenting individuals and human beings rather than using force to get your way with other people. How that relates to Islam, because there's so much misconceptions about the faith of Islam due to scaremongering tactics by the so-called liberal media. You know, you have your Fox News, but, you know, you got your MSNBC and you got your Fox. You even got Bill Maher playing into Islamophobia. You've got shows like 24 and Homeland. And, you know, we got to torture them because they're Muslim and they're terrorists or, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, I believe the only type of profiling that should go on on the airport is by individual. If that individual person is suspected, you know, have them be recognized by face uh, by the various employees that work there. No facial recognition technology where a computer does it. No any kind of that. You know, if the individual themselves is actually suspected of a crime with due process, that's the only time someone should be quote-unquote profiled, but not because of their religion 
or their race or whatever, you know, uh, due process is colorblind. And with all the anti-Muslim rhetoric being ramped up, like, especially the one that's like, you're going to, they got to convert you or die. Uh, like they're going to kill you unless you convert. Uh, that's one of the biggest misconceptions. So my guest for tonight is not only going to break down those misconceptions, uh, about how, you know, the convert or die thing, as well as the monolithic, the, how it's a myth that the Muslim world is monolithic. He's also going to explain how, uh, the principles of Islam, especially in regards to sound money, relate to libertarianism and, and the philosophy of liberty. Joining me now is Davi Barker. He is from Muslims for Liberty with the number four. It's Muslims, the number four, liberty.org, as well as shiny badges. You can get all your libertarian, voluntarist, anarchist, and agorist uh, shiny badges. Like, uh, which one are you wearing on there? That's the Bitcoin. It's a Bitcoin B, and it says free the market, free the world. Awesome. <laughs> So you can check out Shiny Badges at shinybadges.com. Uh, but Davi, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. No problem. So from, you're, you're from Muslims for Liberty. So please uh, tell our listeners, what are some of the basic tenets of the Muslim faith? Uh, the five pillars, I suppose, is the easiest. Or I guess the tenets of faith is more like articles of faith. But uh, I guess it's just it's monotheism. It's uh, to believe in one God, to believe in the prophets of God, to believe in the scriptures of God. And uh, to believe in an accountability in the afterlife. Mm -hmm. uh, what are some of the biggest myths perpetuated by the mainstream media uh, and, and people who tend to uh, want to just bash Islam without fact or reason? Um, I think probably one of the biggest myths is that it's foreign. Um, it's sort of characterized as a specifically Arab religion when in reality Arabs are only something like 20% of Muslims worldwide and in fact Muslims are also like not even necessarily an immigrant population uh, there was I mean it's impossible to get a, a hard statistic but there's records of a lot of, um, of slaves that were brought over in early America were Muslim and so you have an indigenous Muslim tradition in the African American community throughout all of American history so it's not a foreign religion um, other than that, I mean, it's really just treating them as monolith. To, to say that a Muslim says something in some country somewhere means that all Muslims everywhere believe that. I mean, that's yeah. that kind of textbook mythology. Yeah, so. yeah and, and cer certainly even in regards to the way people look at countries, but we'll certainly get to that whole deal later. Um, for The next question I want to ask is how is the Muslim faith compatible with the principles of liberty, anarchism, and or agorism? Uh, so this is um, kind of our area of investigation. I wouldn't necessarily say that this is uh, normative, um, but, I mean, it, it is part of, of the religion, and it has been throughout history. So um, there's a, a verse in the Quran that says there shall be no compulsion in this way of life, and so we extrapolate that to be much more universal than most people want to apply it. Um, but, I mean, as far as, uh, like, let's say, um, so, so most of Muslims for Liberty, I would say, are, are libertarian on the political spectrum. I lean much more voluntarist, like complete liberty. Mm -hmm. um, and so I like to point to anarchist movements in the Islamic world from the very beginning. Um, if you look at the original schism between Sunni and Shia Islam, it was a political division between leaders. And there was a third sect at the time called the Karajites, which said, we don't want any leaders. 
<laughs> so, I mean, it's always been, it's always been part of the kind of conversation, but they're maligned throughout history as sort of these extremists of their day. So they're not exactly, they're not exactly like models of, of um, the sort of peaceful movement that we want now. But it, it, there's a great skepticism of leadership all throughout Islamic history. In the ninth century, there were explicit anarchists who were saying, if all of our leaders become corrupt, maybe it's time to stop having leaders. And there were a lot of people writing at the time about ways that you could organize society without leaders. And, I mean, direct democracy was one of the proposals, but another was to just have no leaders at all. And they proposed that people would self-organize, and I think that they were correct, but they never had an opportunity to implement it. Um, so, I mean, there's also a lot of compatibility just with sort of, like, positions that libertarians take. Like, um, gold and silver are pretty explicitly money in Islamic scripture, and um, what we call fiat money now, yeah, cool. Is that, uh, is that one of the, the Mises coins? Who is that? It's uh, Rothbard. It's a Rothbard coin? Mm -hmm. Cool. So, and the rejection of fiat money goes all the way back to the very first um, Islamic coins. The first Islamic coins were actually minted because they were, they were getting debased currencies from Rome, and they're saying, we don't want these debased currencies. So this, this debate over economics has been going on throughout all of Islamic history. Awesome. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, and obviously war is an easy one. Uh, because most of the wars being fought right now are in Muslim countries and, and against Muslims, so it's yeah. a pretty easy sort of alignment to make with with libertarians politically. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, so how was uh, the organization Muslims for Liberty formed, and what are the group's goals? Uh, different ways of action, uh, getting uh, like you guys get into magazines often. Yeah, it's. I'd say it's primarily an educational institution. Like we we um, we have some writers. I write some articles that are published there. Uh, it really it is an example of spontaneous order. Uh, Muslimsforliberty.org and Muslims for Liberty, the Facebook page, were started by different people independently, and then we sort of merged them together and collaborated. <laughs> so. Uh, and it just happened that they both used the same name, and they both used the number four, and, <laughs> and it just worked out. And there was no kind of conflict over the, nobody called the UN to, you know, demand property over the URL or anything. And uh, we just, we found each other online, and we've been sort of organizing since then and adding chapters around the country. We just added New Hampshire. Um so uh, primary goals, well, we're doing two things. We're, um, we're talking to the Muslim community about liberty, um, both why it's relevant in the modern world and also sort of what they haven't been taught about their own, their own heritage and their own, their own history. And then we're also talking to Americans and we're sort of, we're, we're, we're sort of doing the um, damage control thing in public, in the media. But we're doing it from a libertarian perspective, which isn't really being done. Typically, civil rights organizations tend to lean left. And so um, we're presenting, we think, a unique perspective in, in that regard. Certainly. Um, talk, talk about different uh, magazines that you've been featured in um, uh, and how, how that has uh, kind of brought the attention of the uh, liberty perspective within the Muslim faith. Sure. Uh, the first Islamic publication that I was published in is called Illum Magazine, and it's based here in the Bay Area. 
They are, I would say, left-leaning as far as, I mean, they're really aiming at sort of a culture magazine, like American Muslim culture, and so there's a lot of fashion, there's a lot of recipes, there's, like, it's a very, life, it's a lifestyle magazine. Um, but I presented, I, I like, I think the first one that I wrote was about the taco cores. Have you heard of taco core? Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's like Islamic punk rock. <laughs> so, awesome. uh, Michael Muhammad Knight wrote this book, The Taco Cores, and it was his fantasy because he was from a punk rock background and he converted to Islam and he didn't find a punk rock community in the Muslim community. And so he wrote this book about a fictional punk rock community in Northern New York. And then people started writing to him and saying, I am Taco Core. <laughs> and he discovered there were all of these like punk Muslims that never had their own word, and so they adopted his, and now there's all these bands that have erupted that are specifically like Islamic punk rock. Awesome. And I was like, this is, a, this is a cultural trend we have to pay attention to, right? Yeah. Because it's, um, it's largely about rejecting culture. Mm-hmm. It's, it's people saying that they want to identify as Muslims, but they also like, they want to reject culture, and they have this oh, their own indigenous culture they want to adopt from punk rock. So... I, it's hard to say how influential any of that is. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've, I've, I've published in a lot of different websites, examiner.com, I write for dailyanarchist.com. I write, uh, I have a Muslim, or an Islamic-specific column at patheos.com. And it's like, people come out of the woodwork. I almost have the same experience that um, Michael Muhammad Knight had, where I didn't know that anybody else thought the way that I did until I started publishing. And then people started emailing me, and they started saying, I've been thinking this way, but I thought I was alone. That's sort of, I guess, the, the most uh, significant uh, impact that I've had for myself. Definitely. You'll, you'll have to send me some uh, links to some MP3s. I'll play some uh, Muslim punk rock songs to follow this interview. Okay. Definitely. Um, so R- Ramadan is certainly going on right now. What are the, implica- right. uh, what are the implications of... Uh, the, the treatment of the prisoners on Guantanamo, are they being force-fed during Ramadan, like during the day when they're supposed to be fasting, or are they at the very least trying to respect them? No. Wow. <laughs> so I think there are, I mean, these numbers are all kind of up in the air. I don't know how people even get these numbers, but there's supposedly 100 detainees that are uh, engaged in a hunger strike, and there are 40 that are slated to be force-fed. And uh, they essentially said that they're not going to respect the hours of fasting because force-feeding a detainee is a two-hour ordeal, and they don't have the, the staff to feed them all in the evening. So they'll feed them whenever they feed them. Um, wow. If you want to get some idea of what that means, uh, do you know that there's a rapper named Most Deaf? Yep. And uh, he's also, you'll, you'll find it, it's Yasin Bey is his, uh, his natural name. And uh, he sort of voluntarily underwent the force feeding procedure that they yeah. use in Guantanamo Bay because I guess the procedure was leaked. And so you can find that video of him doing that. And it's, um, it's pretty grotesque. Um, uh, some people say they can't sit all the way through it. But yeah, there, there's, there's no... I mean, religion has been used as a weapon against the Guantanamo detainees from the beginning. They use... Uh, pork products they use. Uh, they, they, there are examples of them putting female soldiers up to strip or give them lap dances to get them to talk or something. Like they use dogs. Like essentially, like military intelligence has decided that there are these cultural tropes from the Muslim world, and they're going to use them to terrify these detainees. Jeez. So, yeah, I would never have expected them to have it have had.
had any respect for for Ramadan while they're in custody. Wow. For those just joining, I'm speaking with Davi Barker. He is from the organization Muslims for Liberty. That's the number four. So go to Muslims number four Liberty dot org and also shiny badges. Pick up some uh, voluntarist, very nice, awesome lapel pins that you could, like the Bitcoin you could see Dobby wearing in the video right now. Um, so we, we mentioned before that people tend to view the Muslim world as monolithic, all like one unit. Everybody represents each other, um, and, and through the the lens of the mainstream media and fictional TV programs, Americans would think that. Um, but little do they know that countries like Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Yemen, and others are heavily in bed with the United States, um, sure. especially you know Saudi Arabia, which on a M4L blog points out that it was, like Israel was British created and a U.S. backed regime, certainly one of the biggest OPEC nations, and and not to mention. I, I mean, this is the really kind of weird, yeah. sick thing is is that. Like, if you look at ideologically, like the 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 theology or the or the the, the, the school of scholarship that is producing radicalism in the Muslim world, they call it Wahhabism or Salafism, and it's it's from this guy, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. Well, if you look at him and his life, he was backed by the British. Like, he was part of the Saudi takeover of the Saudi government, and the Saudi government is the one funding this ideology all over the world. So a lot of your bookstores all have Saudi-approved books. A lot of your mosques and your schools are all funded by Saudi Arabia because they're so oil-rich. Yeah. So, essentially, the United States is backing a regime, a principality, a kingdom that is is radical to the extent of being rejected by mainstream Muslims. Yeah. But they have such like power as as a propaganda wing that they infect all of the Muslim world. They get their book. I mean, they have subsidized publishing, so they it's not a free market of ideas anymore, and. And it's destroying the Muslim world, and it's destroying, and, and it's it's radicalizing people all over the world. Like as if there aren't enough reasons to be angry at the United States. The United States is also funding the largest sort of ideological source of radical Islam. That that is definitely correct. Do, do you think that you know countries like Saudi Arabia, who tend to want to stomp on all the other countries in the in the region, by them working with the U.S. and especially the CIA to you know create groups like Al Qaeda or at least the blowback that is caused by U.S. intervention, do you think that kind of puts a boogeyman of, of, of a false Muslim up for the Western world to see and that, you know, just that justifies, you know, kind of a circular thing of just more war, war upon war based on these boogeymen that are, don't represent mainstream Islam? I think that's the case with, like, CIA programs. Mm -hmm. um, like, a lot of, a lot of the radical, a lot of the radical ideas or extremist ideas coming out of Afghanistan are the result of books written in Nebraska and, let, and and distributed in Afghanistan to radicalize Muslims against the Soviets. So they still use those books, and those books express a radical ideology, but they were not written by Muslim scholars. They were written by, like, Orientalist Islamic scholars, non-Muslim Islamic scholars in Nebraska. So... Um, I th definitely think that's the case with the CIA. I think the Saudi thing is a different animal altogether. I think the Saudi thing is much more sort of like a corporate fascist, sort of like like oh, yeah. their royal family and our royal family get along because they get that they're tax that they're tax farmers. So, <laughs> because we still make friends with the Saudi, that the, our government still makes friends with the Saudi government. So George Bush like was like kissing him on the lips or something. Al Qaeda is meant to be. 
What's that? George Bush was kissing him on the lips. Right, exactly. <laughs> and they're holding hands, and you see Reagan call, like, yeah, I mean, it goes way back. I mean, Americans have a very short political memory, unfortunately. Um, but the Muslim world doesn't. Like, the Muslim world has a political memory that goes back, like, 200 years, and they still sit around in tea houses and talk about revolutions that didn't even happen in their lifetime. So... It's not going to be forgotten anytime soon, so sure. I, I don't know that there's a solution. Yeah, <laughs> and and certainly the CIA is repeating history once more again in Syria, and it doesn't endanger Muslims because Muslims and Jews and Christians are have been living in peace under the Assad government. Yet the U.S. is backing these again some very dangerous groups like the Free Syrian Army or the. Al Nusra Front is, is how has the U.S. Uh, role been in this civil war that's going on right now? I actually I haven't um, I haven't researched Syria very thoroughly. Uh, it's sort of it's difficult. You kind of have to pick your your theater and study yeah. one at a time. So yeah. I've been trying to get to the bottom of Egypt as best I can because I I saw so much potential out of the Arab Spring and yeah. out of Tahrir Square originally. So that's been the most of interest to me. So in Syria, I essentially have to throw up in my hands. And I say I don't believe what I'm being told. So it's hard to make a decision. It's hard to make a judgment. Mm -hmm. But um, I also, in in most of these sort of conflicts, it's um, it's not like there's a good guy and a bad guy anyway. Yeah. Like we're t we're looking at conflicts between two bad actors. Like between like in Egypt, for example, between Morsi and the military. There's no good guy. There's yeah. no. There's no like. There's no like liberty option there, mm -hmm. right? Like, and yeah. you can sort of say like you can argue about the will of the people, and you can argue about who's democratically elected or whatever. But I mean, that doesn't really matter. Like, no, none of them are getting the sort of promise that they demanded during the Arab Spring. Mm -hmm. So, I don't want to take a side. I don't have a side. It's sort of like Palestine and Israel. I don't have a side. I want I want the people to be free. I want them to be prosperous. I think that they're all still the, the people looking for state solutions are uh, going to get more of what they've gotten because state's going to state, you know. Exactly, and certainly both Mor Morsi got bought out by U.S. aid and IMF loans real quick, and the Egyptian army is one of the most heavily U.S. backed, so it's kind of trading out. Um, they're not really trading anything out, are they? If they're both backed by. The U.S. Yeah, no, really. But I mean, that's the strategy, right? That's the same. Um, that's the same as um, when 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 your big sort of lobbying corporate interests uh, back both candidates. Mm -hmm. It's you know, it's the same strategy. It's we're gonna we're gonna fund both sides. We're gonna instigate between them, and we're gonna make pals with whoever wins, as long as they stay on our side of. Uh, you know, what we want our Israeli policy to be, what we want our oil policy to be, what we want our, uh, you know. Some people say that it was sort of set up to fail, like that Morrissey was sort of set up to be this, like, fall guy for the Muslim Brotherhood so that they could show that that wasn't ever going to work. Um, but that's not really, it doesn't seem relevant to me. Because there are so many people there that don't subscribe to that ideology anyway. Like, they really need... Um, they like they really need a freer society where these people with with dramatically different ideas can all experiment. You know, it's not like you can democratically elect one idea and then the other ideology is just going to say, "Oh, well, I guess we're only forty nine percent, so we're going to go peacefully into this bad idea." <laughs> exactly.
so I mean that's part of it too. Is there's a, there's I think a really real prejudice amongst um, people that want people in America that want to to sort of act like the enlightened partner of the Arab Spring or the enlightened partner of the Muslim world, and and act like democracy is this great thing that we're exporting over there mm-hmm. with no acknowledgement whatsoever to how uh, to how ugly it is over here. <laughs> like one of the things that I think really uh, I was not communicated. Um, to Egypt when they decided they were going to start having democratic elections is that nobody's happy with their candidates here. Mm-hmm. Like, they expected that they were going to vote and they were going to have this new leader and the new leader was going to be what they wanted. Democratically elected leaders are never what the electorate wanted. Like, we're all used to that here. We're all used to, like, flip-flops and we're all used to, like, campaign promises being lies. They're not used to that. They thought they were getting what the democratic promise is, mm-hmm. and so they and so they protest when they didn't get it. Exactly, and, and you know that has to do with that. You know, when you have a fifty-one percent, you could vote away the rights of the forty-nine percent. How, how does um, since there are, there are a lot of um, so-called Islamic states? Do you, do, does the Muslim faith require a state that's based on putting out these principles, or do they require voluntary uh, adherence to those principles? So this is where um, this is where I think that I'm probably the most fringe, but at the same time the most um, I don't know what the right word is. I would, I, I want to use the word radical in the classical sense, like I'm close to the root, mm-hmm. uh, because I argue that Islam doesn't call for a state and that a, an Islamic state is a contradiction in terms. And the reason for that is that in common sort of modern parlance, a state is um, a regional monopoly on violence and a monopoly on law and a monopoly on certain municipal services that are given by the state, like garbage or whatever. (laughs) And um, there is no monopoly if you look at early Islamic quote-unquote states. If you look at the example of Prophet Muhammad or you look at the examples of the sort of early or or at least the, the periods of Islamic history that are celebrated by Muslims, mm-hmm. where there's this like enlightenment and there's this education and we talk about like the golden age of Islam, there was no monopoly on in that period. There were there were private judiciary, even judges. Judges were not a function of, of a state. There was there was a leader, like there was a caliph or whatever. But even even throughout history there's disputes over who those were. There was always more than one. <laughs> so like maybe there's this ideal like of, of there being one, but there hasn't ever been that ideal. So you have Jewish judiciaries and Christian judiciaries throughout the Muslim world that are practicing their own sort of customary laws. Or you look at Somalia, um, we talk about the zero law in the libertarian movement a lot, about the Somalia's customary legal system that doesn't require a state. Well that's based on the Maliki school of Islamic law, which was sort of a customary version of it, like a stateless law. So, I mean, yeah, I think that an Islamic state is a contradiction in terms. And, and the reason is, is because any state by any constitution is based on some concept of tacit consent, that by living in the region, you are consenting. And that's not true. There's nothing doctrinally in Islam, and there's nothing rationally or philosophically that makes any sense about tacit consent. So, unless it's explicit consent, like if you had an organization that was providing sort of state-like services that was based on explicit consent, I might call that an Islamic quote-unquote government. But without that, without consent, 
it's it's not anything. It's just tyranny. Exactly. Uh, Muslimsforliberty.org also has uh, Christian and Jewish writers. Um, right. T- talk about um, how, you know, not all Christians are, you know, George Bush-esque, you know, our God is bigger, we got to go, you know, invade the countries, or and not how not all Jews support Zionism, which is a, a, more of a military thing than a religious thing, you know, to, the whole notion being in regards to, you know, you could say the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill or steal, you know, not, not to kill to steal land or invade land. Um, how, how do they provide voices for liberty and peace and non-aggression on the Muslims for Liberty site? So this was something that um, we launched, it seems like almost a year ago. It's called Perspectives, and it's a section of the website that is devoted to any, anybody of any faith who wants to submit an explanation of how they reconcile their religious understanding with their understanding of their own scripture. So people find sort of libertarian arguments in the Bible or libertarian arguments in the Torah or, or really anything, and they explain either their journey from one to the other or, or why they're compatible why they're compatible to them. And it's a very individual um, it's a very individual individualistic project because everybody sort of came their own way and discovered their own evidence and and like again it's it's not a monolith like. like Libertarianism is is very much um, an individualist philosophy, mm-hmm. and so you'll find the same sort of diversity of religious practice that um, people are not really interested in organized religion. They're really interested in reading their scriptures and coming to their own conclusions and analyzing their own evidences and applying their own reason, and they take offense when people tell them they're not allowed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and people will tell you that you're not allowed to do that, uh, but you are. So um, there's no there is no quote unquote libertarian Islamic theology, quote unquote libertarian Christian theology. It's a very it's a very um, atomized approach to religion. I think. For those just joining, I'm speaking with Davi Barker. He is of Muslims for Liberty, Muslims in the number four, liberty.org, and also Shiny Badges. Get your voluntarists and anarchist badges there. Um, what are what are your thoughts on Iran? Uh, first of all, I guess uh, just if, if you have any uh, knowledge of the history of U.S. intervention in Iran and Iran, uh, discuss that briefly, and then... Um, what are some of the you know the modern day implications because we're ramping up the rhetoric once again? Iran actually styles itself as an Islamic government in a sort of more classic way, I guess, mm-hmm. than other Islamic governments. Um, I mean, it is there are some sort of democratic elements or whatever. But what I think is interesting about Iran is that they place themselves in a period of kind of apocalyptic history. Like they, um, so so this is one of my arguments to Muslims as to why they'll never succeed with state solutions. Um, one of the sort of like prophecies it, that is in in the Islamic tradition is that the Prophet Muhammad said that he would be with the community for a period of time, and then for a period of time after him there would be there would be leaders who who led the way he led upon his methodology, which was voluntary. 
And then after them, there would be these despotic kings, and then after them, there would be these, these tyrannies, and then after them, there would be uh, a, a sort of messianic figure who would again be a leader who, who, ruled, who, who led according to the original sort of voluntary methodology. And this is pretty explicit. This figure is called, is called the Mahdi, and Iran presents itself as a government that is sort of laying the groundwork for the return of the Mahdi, right? But they're not claiming to be the Mahdi, so really they're claiming to be one of these despotic tyrannies. Like, if, if you're going to call it a prophecy, and you're going to say that you're part of it, you can't change it. So we're either in a period of despotic kings or we're in a period of tyranny. And anything that calls itself a state has to be one of those two things, and yep. you're going to believe this prophecy. Um, but... It's very explicit that the Mahdi doesn't believe in tacit consent, that he takes face-to-face -face oaths from people on an individual basis, the way that Prophet Muhammad did. So there, there, it's not a state solution. You can't, you can't square that circle. Um, but I mean, it's interesting yeah. <laughs> as far as like a social experiment, I guess. Hmm. Um, but they are, uh, like, from, from taking the theology out of it for a minute and just talking about the politics, um, they have, they, they remember the Shah, you know, and they had a revolution to depose the Shah, and they didn't, it's the same as, as mo most revolutions don't get what the people revolted for, mm -hmm. and so they ended up with a uh, theocracy that, that was, I mean, there were a lot of, in, in the original Iranian revolution, there were a lot of anarchists, and there were a lot of communists, and there were a lot of different brands of secularists, and they were all, they were all squeezed out. <laughs> um, so revolutions, this is another reason to, I think, avoid violent revolutions, is that you never get what you thought you wanted, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but the people in Iran all remember the history of, of America's intervention. So even if they don't agree about what they want their country to look like, they do kind of know who their enemies are, you know? Yeah. Definitely. And, and what do you make of, of the current ramping up of the, of the rhetoric? Uh, I mean, they've had excuses since... You know, Rumsfeld been, has been in, in and out of the government since the late 70s. Uh, what do you make of the, of the modern excuses, and do you think this will as be... As far as the U.S. attacking? Yeah, as far as the U.S. trying to invade, do you think that they will actually try to this go-around? I don't know. You know, there's a, there's a rule in um, screenplays, in, in drama, that if you introduce a gun into a screenplay, it has to go off. Mm -hmm. And... I feel like that's the story with Iran in U.S. politics, that there are so many people, they, they've ratcheted up the tension and the propaganda and, the, and the, um, the American people. There are so many American people who hate Iran for complete, just because they've been told to in various ways, that even if, I think even if the administration wanted to call it off, there would be a lot of pressure like, like people are still going to elect candidates that are are strong on Iran, right? Um, so I'm worried that they pulled out a gun and it has to go off. And I hope that it doesn't, and I don't think that it has to, 
but I kind of wonder if they've started a ball rolling and can't stop. This is the starting lineup yeah. on KKSM. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it works out in peace, but I can't put anything past this government. Um, talk, talk a bit about uh, shiny badges um, the, the, and, and how, you know, different like shiny badge messages like Bitcoin, how does... Uh, Bitcoin and other agorist tools relate to Islam as well as the uh, as well as voluntary Islam. The the I believe sure. it's a book, right? Yeah, voluntary Islam is uh, my first book, and it's a collection of essays about Islam and libertarianism and uh, modern sort of political movements like the Arab Spring and um, even the Tea Party. I was in sort of the first wave of the Tea Party when it was still an anti-war movement. Awesome. Uh, um, so shiny badges is kind of like, um, it's one of my income streams. It's my first sort of attempt at an agorist business. And uh, it's been hugely successful. I got really frustrated with t-shirts because they're so bulky and because uh, you have to keep all the different sizes in stock. Yeah. And I just sort of thought, like, what is the point of a t-shirt? Well, the point of a t-shirt is usually that a person wants to wear their message on their sleeve. And so I just, I decided to kind of, um, invest some money in these. You have to order larger quantities than you do T-shirts, but uh, they're just they're die-struck metallic lapel pins. They're the same thing that you you'd see on a politician's lapel, um, but they're of our ideology. They're black and gold flags. They're voluntary V's. They're Bitcoin V's. They're um, actually there's uh, it's not on the site yet, but there's a Muslims for Liberty pin that's sort of like a tree, um, and you know they're great. They 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 start conversations in a way that um, regular buttons don't. Like I used to make one inch sort of epoxy pop buttons, and I find the lapel pins they, they start conversations in a totally different way. The reason I'm enthusiastic about Bitcoin is um, because. I'm so concerned about currency, mm -hmm. and I was always, like, this also kind of comes out of Islam, too, that Islam, um, so, so gold and silver is traditionally money in Islam, and so I got on board with Ron Paul and the Liberty Dollar and the whole precious metals scene, and um, when Bitcoin showed up, it was like a curveball. It was like, yeah. it's not really precious metals. It's not like I can hold it in my hand. It doesn't satisfy that part of, of why I'm interested in precious metals, but it does satisfy all the reasons I hate fiat money. You know, like it's not a, it's not a price set by a central bank. It's not inflated. It's not, um, it's not used for war. It's not something that can be, um, I can't be taxed by them. War. Like, and so I sort of had this sort of struggle to think like, is this going to, going to do it for me. And so I, I, I looked into not just like gold and silver, but what the Islamic definition of money is, because there are periods where they used other things like, uh, like wheat or barley or salt or, or any sort of commodity. And it's like, what are the attributes of these things that make them valuable as money? And does Bitcoin have those attributes? Mm -hmm. And um, then um, some of the Islamic scholars talk about the necessity of an intrinsic value. Bitcoin satisfies all the same criterion as a commodity. And the necessity of an intrinsic value is a, it's really disputable thing anyway. Like, what is an intrinsic value? If you talk to Austrian economists, they say there's no such thing as intrinsic value and that all value is subjective. So, um, so I wrote this article, Is Bitcoin Sharia Compliant? 
and it started a lot of conversation and it started a lot of interest and, and it actually like turned a lot of Muslims on to Bitcoin. Like there's a lot of people in my community now that are really enthusiastic about it who who wanted silver wanted a silver currency like five years ago, but it was just too hard to get off the ground. And and now here's this sort of alternative that lets them do it in a completely different way. The other thing is like the market is speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, the people who were silver enthusiasts, like I, I went to Portfest this year, and um, there were people who said they wanted bit, they were accepting Bitcoin and not accepting silver. So for whatever wow. reason, people were saying that Bitcoin was more valuable to them as a currency than silver. Silver was so much easier. Like with silver, they had to assess it on the on the spot. They had to maybe weigh it. They, they didn't have an easy way to cash out if they needed to restock their merchandise, and yeah. they found that Bitcoin was so much easier that they weren't they didn't want silver anymore. And I mean that's a huge yeah. shift in the alternative currency kind of community or culture. Definitely, and, and and like you mentioned before, when when they print new money, it, they devalue our dollar, but the value goes to kind of pay for war and government. So I think. It, both are definitely, whether precious metals or Bitcoin, definitely ways to protest war and take your your uh, your kind of your sovereignty back by using currencies that retain their yeah. value. The other thing that's really appealing to Muslims about Bitcoin is that it's a way around sanctions. Um, there are uh, examples of people transferring money to Iran, even though it's technically illegal, but it's untraceable, so who cares? <laughs> and there's talk of setting up sort of e-commerce in Gaza, because Gaza is completely blockaded. They can't really import or export without going through Israel. But they can provide sort of um, tech support. They can provide any sort of digital service and accept Bitcoin. And there's there's no way to really blockade it without just shutting off Internet to the whole, the whole place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's sort of become easier, especially there's a lot of scrutiny in the United States of Islamic charities. The, the federal government goes after Islamic charities a lot and tries to construe them as material support for terrorism. So um, essentially the pool of Islamic charities in this country has like whittled down to just the big ones because they're big enough to sort of have lawyers around. Mm-hmm. And um, with Bitcoin, people can send money to their families without worrying about wire transfers or banks or any of it. So um, there's, a, there's a real sense in, in, in that, that they have much more financial freedom by using it, mm-hmm. even than precious metals, because you can't really send precious metals overseas yeah. in any efficient way. Yeah. What are the rules regarding, because uh, this, this was a post on the Muslims for Liberty Facebook page, what are the re- rules uh, in Ramadan re- regarding cannabis consumption? <laughs> cannabis consumption. Okay, well... Um, the normative opinion is that cannabis is sort of considered like alcohol, and it's an intoxicant, and so it would be prohibited. Um, I don't smoke cannabis, <laughs> but there are people that do, and I feel like um, as far as the drugs that are out there, it's definitely not as, as harmful as alcohol, so it's hard for me to say that, that the ruling is analogous, because like, there's no mention of marijuana in the scripture anywhere. It, the rulings that people give are just analogies to alcohol, mm-hmm. and it's nowhere near as dangerous as alcohol, so yeah. I, I'm pretty skeptical of that analogy. 
Um, as far as fasting is concerned, um, I think people don't smoke when they're fasting. Uh, I'm not really sure, though, because I don't smoke, so I've never asked. But, <laughs> but um, I know uh, when I lived in Saudi Arabia, they didn't smoke while they were fasting. But they also didn't swallow when they were fasting, so they would, like, spit in the street and stuff. And that's just weird. <laughs> like, they wouldn't swallow their own spit. <laughs> um, so I, I think a, bi a big myth regarding Islam is that pe like, especially when it comes to Fox News is that if you're not Muslim they're going to kill you and you're going to die um, there was a great article relating to Lupe Fiasco how, how, is, um, the, how, does, how, do, how is that a myth and then also the, you know, the true meaning of jihad which is really just speaking truth to power you know, peacefully with words not force so um there are examples of violence in uh, Islamic scripture and Islamic history, including uh, in the prophetic period. Prophet Muhammad was in battles. Mm -hmm. And so it's possible to take statements out of context and construe them as a war of all against all for all time. Um, but in my experience, you read the next verse or you read the verse right before it, and it's always something like, except those that don't aggress against you or accept those that ask for peace with you, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, it just takes, it takes the, just the most minuscule amount of research to see that it's, that it's defensive, mm -hmm. that defensive violence is, is what's going on in every case. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't Muslims in the modern world who miss that and believe in aggressive war. The same way there are Christians in the modern world who don't get that theirs is a message of peace and are aggressive in the modern world. So, um, as far as jihad is concerned, people translate jihad as holy war, and it's not even that's not even the way it's used in the scripture. The word harb is war, and um, that that's not the word that was used. So yeah. that's not what it means. I mean, it is used for physical conflict. I mean, it literally means struggle. So you could use the word jihad to describe a physical struggle. But um, in a spiritual context, it means both to, uh, to struggle with yourself and your own sort of shortcomings and biases. And um, you're probably referring to, uh, this is my favorite perfect saying, I, I post this all over the place, and it's that Muhammad is reported to have said that the greatest jihad is to speak a word of truth in the face of a tyrant. And um, that's, like, that's like a Jefferson quote, right? Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, so yeah, that's that's what it that's what it tends that I mean that's what it traditionally means is is to struggle in sort of a righteous way against the against evil, whether it's outwardly or inwardly. Um, but yeah, the doctrine of war in Islam is always defensive. Definitely. Do you have any final words for the listeners? And again, plug all the social media websites and everything like that. Uh, you know, I would just say visit the website. There's a lot of articles on there if you want to go into in, in more in depth in any of these subjects. There's sort of a, there's a great art kind of archive. Most even most of Voluntary Islam is available on the website if you just look for it. It's just broken up into articles instead of all in one place. But uh, yeah, if you're Muslims, the number four liberty.org, or you can find um, anything from me at dobbybarker.com or shinybadges.com. Those both go to the same place, and there's a lot of my writing there too. Um, but yeah, I mean, just thanks for having me on. No problem. Definitely. And, and I've been speaking with Davi Barker of Muslims for Liberty. That's Muslims4Liberty.org. 
He is the author and editor of Voluntary Islam and uh, is the producer of ShinyBadges.com. Davi, thank you again very much for joining the program. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And if you missed any part of the episode, the uh, podcast will be up on iTunes tomorrow. Just go to iTunes Store, search for Free Thought, and look for Free Thought AAC, uh, as well as on the LRN.FM weekly podcast loop. And uh, yeah, in regards to Islam, you know, the convert or die thing is just Fox News propaganda. Uh, it's, pre- it's pretty clear. And just like he mentioned, the exporters of extreme Islam happen to be uh, the false state of Saudi Arabia, again, created by a British military coup and then continuously backed by the United States, given the OPEC status. When we took the dollar off the gold standard in 1971, it was backed by OPEC afterwards. You know, that the U.S. military would come in and protect OPEC uh, in exchange for uh, keeping it priced in the dollar. And thus, the dollar, the Federal Reserve note, is the world's reserve currency. And so, when other cur- countries are printing fiat money out of thin air, what backs their currencies? Well, they're backed by our fiat money that we print out of thin air. So, the entire world is going to hell in a handbasket if the dollar collapses. And their currencies that are backed by our dollar are already collapsing. And our dollar is already collapsing. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's very interesting to hear that, uh, that sound money is a, is a part of Islam because, uh, at least within, uh, some people want to, to denounce that, you know, we, we, you know, silver isn't the solution. We need to get rid of all money. Well, you know, that's what voluntary exchange is for, that... You know, especially if we had a freer economy, we'd all be able to produce our own food without, you know, them saying, oh, that's interstate commerce. You can't do that. Or you need a permit or you need a license or I'm from Monsanto and I'm suing you because my pollen came over into your yard, contaminated your plant. And thus I own it because of a patent. You know, if we all grew, grew more food for each other, money would be just the last resort for things that we actually need, you know, to compensate people for things, you know, a medium of exchange. You know, it, it can't. It, it does have a purpose. It just has to be honest. And something that is, it, its value is contained in the physical mass that it encompasses itself, like a silver round. You know, you can't you know throw it into water like a chia pet or something, and it grows. You know, it has its own value that's retained in you know the thirty-nine millimeter physical mass that encompasses itself. Can't unlike the dollar, which is printed out of thin air. So very, very interesting. Muslims, the number four, liberty.org. And uh, he introduced me to Takwakor, which is Muslim punk rock. So I want to play uh, two songs here by uh, two Muslim punk rock bands. This first one is called Psalm of the Sniper by Althara. Uh, and then after that, Tahrir Square Dance by the Cominas. And both of those are featured on the compilation Hardcore for Syria, Volume 1. Uh, which is a bunch of hardcore punk uh, dedicated to keeping the Syrian rebels and the United States imperialism out of Syria. You know, as bad as Assad is, you got to leave Syria alone. We're creating a lot of problems over there, and we're going to just try to bait Iran into coming and, uh, you know, starting a a whole uh, big uh, war mess over there uh, that we have probably not seen the likes of uh, in this uh, false war on terror. So this is Psalm of the Sniper by Althara, and then after that, Tahrir Square Dance by the Kaminas, both off of Hardcore for Syria, Volume 1, Bedefin album for non-intervention in Syria. 
You're listening to KKSM AM 1320, the Radio Revolution, and LRN.FM, the Liberty Radio Network. Jihad is speaking a word of truth to a tyrant's face, peacefully. How many words of truth have I been speaking on this show to, to tyrants? Be right back, guys. Yeah. 
KKSM, the radio revolution. Are you tired of governments murdering people around the world? Stop using their money. There is an alternative. Bitcoin is a stateless, free market, non-political currency. Bitcoin cannot be inflated or controlled by any government. By using their money, you are helping the state. Stop doing it. You have an incredible alternative available now. Learn it, use it, spread it. Get started with Bitcoin at WeUseCoins.com. That's WeUseCoins.com. KKSM. Cool people listen on AM 1320. Party people listen on Cox Cable 957. And traveling people listen on PalomarCollegeRadio.com or download the Ustream app for their smartphones. KKSM, the radio revolution. Do you feel like there's nothing you can do about the inexorable growth of government? I did too, before I heard about the Free State Project. The Free State Project is a project to get 20,000 liberty lovers to move to New Hampshire to have liberty in our lifetimes. Early movers for the FSP are getting elected, involved in their communities, and participating in civil disobedience. Call 888-377-2515 now to learn more about the Free State Project. 888-377-2515 or visit freestateproject.org. KKSM. Nigerian email scammers, listen to us. The Radio Revolution. Welcome back, everybody. My guest for the last hour was Davi Barker of Muslims for Liberty and ShinyBadges.com. Uh, my guest in the next hour is going to be Brad Burge. He is from the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and we're going to talk all about LSD and MDMA and everything cool like that. Um, but I want to play uh, some of the news. Uh, and this next one is, uh, is this news reel is, is actually rap news. It's in rap. And it's from the Juice Media uh, with Robert Foster. I believe they're from Australia or New Zealand or England or something like that. But they do really, really awesome stuff. And it has to do with whistleblowing and the NSA. And what I have to say about that is that now that the NSA can hear you through your phone in your pocket. I've got my Verizon phone hanging out here. Hey, NSA, how's it going? If you want to tune in, uh, go to the website. Give me some ratings instead of a maybe a... a <laughs> ham radio or whatever you guys are using uh you know the fact that i have to like turn my phone off throw it in the other room throw my wallet in the other room because it might have an rfid chip that if i want to communicate something to somebody that i may have to write it on paper i feel a lot like the guy in 1984 you know the winston guy or whatever when he was writing his thoughts down on paper because if he ever uh if he ever got them uh if they ever found out what he actually thought then uh you know he would you know, go to jail for a thought crime. Um, I feel that's like where we're at right now. So it's a reality. It's a complete reality. And uh, yeah, nobody seems to care, unfortunately. So here's maybe something that might uh, give you a little, a pulse, give you a pulse on where we're at right now. This is the newsreel uh, brought to you by the Juice Media Rap News. Viewers, thank you for clicking through to view this exclusive brand new edition of Juice Rap News back 
through with the global transmission with your host Robert Foster and we're glad to begin by introducing this routine interview scheduled today with our regular US guest now director of the NSA General Baxter Hi. can you provide via satellite an update on the state of the empire Bob we have to confide I'm satisfied in fact I got no axe to grind our Nobel Peace Prize president mastermind has a healthy appetite for sending drones to smash the lives of brown children uh, Muslims I mean terrorist hoodlums egregious goddamn right we agree it's just every American will feel hot pangs of pride when they hear of this but guess what I'm most excited about this finally happening what the court martial of private Bradley Manning three years without trial and a touch of torture that's how we punish dissent in the free world order after this no one will dare blow whistles or leak intel or question our right to read every single freaking email Oops. did you just say you read everyone's emails but emails no we don't read scan track record and store every detail at all no sir not wittingly perhaps a few billion emails accidentally okay general we're just getting sent a signal it's the fearless journalist crusader direct from rio the guardian of civil liberties sir glenn greenwald robert hello hi glenn what quest are you and your steed on a hero has leaked classified documents finally proving that the nsa has secretly obtained access directly to all the servers of facebook apple yahoo youtube skype and google this prism system for spying on users from the dark side of the moon will record everything that arrives on screens emails chats grinder feed robert it took great courage from this whistleblower to decide to leak they've taken a great risk in getting us their fellow citizens this critical glimpse into what is really happening behind the scenes. Mark Zuckerberg, your position? Words, sit back, listen. You're rocking with Zuckerberg, f***ing nerd tactician. So, prison? What's that, prison? Never even heard of that system. Yeah, we got a program running, but we call it fascism. Do your users like that? A billion likes, cousin, and if you dislike something, here's my dislike button. I'm in charge, you f***ing turds. Interview's over, finished, ended. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, CEO, bitches, unfriended. Okay then, General, would you like to make a statement? I'm disgusted. You are? That's amazing. I had no idea that this could occur. It's devastating. Shocking, I concur. So will there be an investigation? You betcha. We're gonna get those who broke their oath to the law. Wonderful. And hold them responsible. This has gone too far. I think the whole world feels the same. Call Gitmo! I'm personally gonna torture whoever leaked all this info. Wait, what? We've become a freaking culture of leaks. What if every uppity geek who happens not to agree with the state's tyranny decided to expose it to all and sundry? That might lead to a revolution. Indeed. See what I mean? Look, we welcome this debate openly. Free speech is sanctified. Okay then, does the NSA Key. Sorry, that's classified. So, what are the laws for the- eh, Access denied. Well, how can we see- Oops, debate time has expired. Uh, hold on, we're picking up another feed, this time from Hong Kong. Glenn, it's me again. I got an update on what's going on. Greenwald, we're gonna prosecute you for reason. I mean treason. Uh-uh, your threats are no match for my shield, and you'll cower under the weight of words when I'm wielding my pen sword. By the power of Greenwald! Did you have an update for the people? Oh yeah, now, uh, world, meet the brave leaker Edward Snowden. He's made a video to reveal his motives for whistleblowing. What's up, Edward? Hey, Glenn, what's up? Yeah, what's going on here? Me one big up the odd step of them Ellsberg and Manning, you know what I'm saying? Eh? Yo, Snowden, they're gonna come around here looking for you today. Word. Word. Busted. Whistleblower, you know the Eddie Snowden, them go blame. But leaking secrets out. The men that say I say, and Eddie Snowden done betrayed the USA. But leaking secrets out. Whistleblower, you know the Eddie Snowden, them go blame. But leaking secrets out. The men that say I say, and Eddie Snowden done betrayed the USA. But leaking secrets out. We're gonna find them answer down in Hawaii. Find them in some paper and not BIV. But the Babylon will buy up on the Civil Liberty. So me decide, betray me safety For the second offender, let me see this in privacy If you see something, say something
me and follow me and be whistleblowers You know see it is not and them go blame But you can see it's out The men are saying say it is not and don't betray the USA But you can see it's out Well dear viewers, that's about it for this edition But it wouldn't be complete without some final questions Whistleblowers, they leak in the public interest Now what remains to be known is, is the public interested? If so, this might be a good day to exhibit it Ignorance is a choice in the age of the internet. Many consider this all very bewildering. Some praise these acts as heroic, worthy of mimicking. Others condemn them as illegal and prohibited. But can't both be equally applicative? To be good humans, we're sometimes called upon to be bad citizens. Some nations were even born by breaking laws of the tyrannous. Do you support heroes from days of yore, who in order to cause reforms disobey the law? Then what about those in the present, who heed the same call? This is Robert Foster for Rap News. Good day to you all. And that was by the Juice Media. And I like the Jamaican Edward Snowden. <laughs> Pretty awesome. And I played it on the last week's show, but unfortunately there were some curse words, so I had to hit the red button, so probably all got a bunch of cutoffs and stuff. And we had to hear from Mark Zuckerberg, so... <laughs> um, but the, uh, the traffic situation uh, problem areas, uh, there are none in the North County area where you can pick up KKSM in your car, obviously why you would be listening to us for the traffic updates. It's 68 degrees in San Marcos, California, broadcasting live from KKSM for KKSM and LRN.FM. My name's Alex Fiddle here, host of Free Thought Radio. Continues after the break with Brad of the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. Because I always talk about cannabis, but never the other drugs. You're listening to KKSM AM 1320 Oceanside, PalomarCollegeRadio.com. If you're an adult who enjoys a good beer, there's a similar product you might want to know about. One without all the calories and serious health problems. Less toxic so it doesn't cause hangovers or overdose deaths, and it's not linked to violence or reckless behavior. Marijuana. Less harmful than alcohol, and time to treat it that way. For more information, visit MarijuanaIsSafer.org. What does freedom mean? Tune in to LRN.FM to find out. LRN.FM is the Liberty Radio Network, a collection of live talk radio and podcasts, all coming from a principled pro-liberty perspective. LRN.FM show hosts aren't left, right, or conspiracy kooks. You can tune in 24-7 to LRN.FM via your phone, computer, satellite, and more. Listen free anytime at LRN.FM. That's LRN.FM. You're listening to KKSM AM 1320 Oceanside. Welcome back to Free Thought Radio, freethoughtmedia.org. I'm your host, Alex Fiddle. And uh, it's Monday every uh, week, 6 to 9 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, here on KKSM Oceanside AM 1320, The Radio Revolution, facebook.com slash KKSM Radio, and podcasting on the Liberty Radio Network, Keene, New Hampshire, LRN.FM and Facebook.com slash LRN.FM. My guest in the last hour was Davi Barker of Muslims for Liberty and ShinyBadges.com. But my guest for this hour, um, you know, I always have people on that talk about cannabis and how drug policy fails. Usually I have uh, law enforcement against prohibition to talk about the other drugs, but their stance is yes, and I would agree with them. Drugs are bad, but 
prohibition makes them worse. Handcuffs do not work, and they endanger cops and people, violate the Constitution, and uh, create cartels in the first place. You know, they, if they had courts to go to to settle their disputes, they would not have guns. But, you know, aside from, you know, the, the blanket argument of drugs being bad, which of course includes heroin and cocaine and drugs that I consider to be horrendous, uh, of which alcohol is more dangerous than those even, uh, I, I, I wouldn't go so as far to say that cannabis is necessarily bad. Uh, it is actually beneficial. It heals your organs. It causes mutated cells to heal. Uh, that's why it causes cancer cells uh, to kill themselves. It reduces the effects of diabetes itself. Uh, MS itself, you know, you, you have, you know, it, it gets rid of the symptoms of chemotherapy drugs, but it also goes after the cancer itself. So it's not just uh, side effect relief. It's actual, you know, disease relief, MS, epilepsy. You go down the list, PTSD, chronic pain. Uh, it's a very, very powerful medical substance uh, that being THC and CBD. I think the same can be said uh, in regards to MDMA and LSD, uh, which we're going to talk about in this episode uh, with my guest uh, f- uh, for this hour. Uh, and I just want to say first um, that, you know, they have been doing studies with PTSD in regards to MDMA. And, uh, you know, uh, these on the scale uh, of, you know, toxicity and danger to the human body you know you have cannabis and like lsd on on the you know the safe end safer end and then you have like mdma somewhere in the middle and cocaine heroin and alcohol and tobacco all the way on the most dangerous end uh so our drug policy does not reflect science and it doesn't make the drugs go away anyway so uh my guest for right now is is going to tell uh, us about exactly uh, what are the problems that prohibition causes with psychedelic drugs, especially when it comes to preventing the medical use of those psychedelic drugs. Joining me now is Brad Burge. He is the communications director for MAPS, the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies that you can be found at www.maps.org. Brad, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks, Alex. It's great to be here. No problem. Uh, so how did MAPS start, and, and what is MAPS all about? Uh, well, uh, MAPS is a really interesting organization. Uh, you know, it's, it's really exciting uh, to be working in such an interesting field. Um, we are a nonprofit uh, research and education organization, uh, which is to say we're not-for-profit. We take uh, all of the donations we receive, and we put them directly back into research uh, and public education. Um, we're focused on uh, the beneficial effects that psychedelics and marijuana can have for people in certain contexts. Um, so our main work right now is uh, working with the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA and the DEA and other government agencies to move uh, certain psychedelics uh, through the prescription approval process so that they can be more widely available um, in legal contexts uh, uh, for people with certain kinds of conditions. Um, and then we're also uh, uh, working on educating the public more honestly about the real risks and benefits uh, of psychedelic drugs, 
um, we've been doing that since 1986. Uh, we've been around for 27 years. Um, uh, and uh, we were founded in response to the criminalization of MDMA uh, in 1985. And so trying to return psychedelics back to where they were before the criminalization, before the expansion of widespread recreational use of these drugs, uh, to return to legitimacy the field of research uh, and education that once existed surrounding them. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I usually uh, talk about cannabis on this show, uh, but I never really, uh, unless it's somebody like law enforcement against prohibition, but never really the research element of it. My first intro to the myths about other drugs due to government propaganda was uh, I, I was interviewing Governor Gary Johnson, who told me about Doc Ellis, the baseball player who pitched a no-hitter on LSD. <laughs> M many people other than him have, have done LSD, such as you know Steve Jobs, John Lennon, Hunter Thompson, and, and more who have, who have done, done a lot to, uh, for this world. Uh, what is L LSD and what does it do? What are some of the myths associate, associated with it? And what are the therapeutic benefits of its, of its controlled use? Uh, well, yeah, you know, it's really interesting you, you, you introduced it that way, you, you know, because, uh, you know, the, the uh, propaganda, the lies, the, the, the miseducation, uh, and the absence of good education uh, about drugs, um, you know, applies to psychedelics like LSD uh, uh, just as much um, as it applies to cannabis. Now, now interestingly, um, uh, psychedelic research has actually been able to make significant advances. So legal research uh, uh, with major universities and government uh, organizations has actually moved forward a lot uh, in the last 25 years, whereas uh, uh, clinical research looking at marijuana as a potential prescription medicine has been frozen. Uh, so there's actually a lot of resistance to uh, uh, advancing medical cannabis uh, research on the part of the federal government and a lot more openness to advancing psychedelic research. So that's a really interesting um, attention. Um, now, LSD, uh, as you mentioned, a whole lot more people than uh, um, uh, Steve Jobs um, has, has, has taken LSD. Um, you, know, it's, 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 it, you know, we hear about these, these famous people um, you know, who credit uh, their, their LSD experiences uh, as, as, as helping spur their innovation or, or, or being connected to their innovation or their work. Um, but in fact, millions of people, especially baby boomers, um, have, have had at least some exposure to LSD. Um, LSD was first uh, uh, discovered uh, by Albert Hoffman, uh, who was a uh, Swiss chemist working in the laboratories of the Sandoz Pharmaceutical Company. Uh, uh, in Germany. Uh, he was working in 1946 and uh, playing around with a number of chemicals and uh, um, over the course of his experiments he, he, he accidentally ingested the LSD compound. Um, uh, LSD is a synthetic chemical that's, that's, that's ultimately derived um, from the ergot fun fungus or morning glory seeds or, or, um, or other things. Of course it's very very hard to um, uh, uh, do this chemical process so it takes a laboratory and all of that. Um, so, so Hoffman stumbled upon this um, and uh, 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 just shared it with a small network of friends. And, and over the course of the late 1940s and the 1950s and even the early 1960s, uh, lots of scientists, uh, including therapists, uh, psychiatrists, uh, started looking at LSD and using LSD as a tool in psychotherapy. Um, that was really where LSD entered onto the scene. Uh, we find uh, uh, numerous studies, dozens, uh, scores um, uh, of, of uh, um, 
early legal research studies uh, looking at LSD's potential use in therapy um, uh, in, in, in very controlled contexts. So these are studies looking at uh, what happens if we, uh, um, if, if we bring in patients, we bring in subjects with trauma or who are suffering from severe anxiety, um, and we give them LSD just, just once or twice, just a couple of times, and then we combine that with really careful therapy. And that's what these early researchers in the 40s and 50s uh, and 60s were, were, were looking at. Um, Hoffman was one of those. Stanislav Grof uh, is another major researcher in that area um, who was working in Europe on this at the time. And then, of course, uh, we're all familiar with the story where it picks up in the 1960s, where, where suddenly a large number of people, especially youth and activists, are picking up this drug, uh, and they're using it for other purposes, or they're using it more openly, or they're using it not in these very specific therapeutic contexts. That's the point where we start getting a lot of government fear, and it starts getting attached to the uh, existing propaganda um, that's connected to cannabis. So LSD has this long history, um, uh, you know, starting with an accidental discovery, moving through being a, a, a research tool, and then finally in the 60s and 70s opening up to the broader public. So the, the, the history of LSD is a lot more complex than, than we've, uh, we've, we've been led to believe. Definitely. And... Uh what, what do you make of the, of the conscious value of LSD that kind of goes to a, a famous Bill Hicks quote that it kind of the, the two drugs that or the ones that are legal do nothing for you, but the two drugs that are illegal kind of open you up to the fact that you're being f every day of your life by the system. What, what does it do uh. to, uh, uh, like you mentioned, therapeutic benefit to cause positivity? And everything like that. What are what are the values in in just the way it, it has like shaped people, um, and and their and um, their their yeah. worldviews? Uh, great question. Um, uh, I, I I have a friend and a fellow uh, a psychedelic researcher, uh, Jim Fadiman, um, uh, uh, who's a psychologist um, and uh, has done a lot of research in this area. Uh, and uh, he once said. Um, you know, LSD uh, uh, is uh, a powerful drug that is known to cause fear and paranoia in those who do not take it. Um, I, I think that's a really apt summary because, um, uh, because what, what people report experiencing on LSD um, is, is, is a change in perspective. You know, a lot of people experience uh, hallucinations or, or reversion to past lives or they have uh, confused identity experiences or it's like passing through a dream. Um, but uh, regardless of the diversity of reports that we hear from people, um, the, the diversity of different kinds of therapeutic or difficult or mystical experiences uh, that people are having, however they describe those experiences. At the root of those is a fundamental change in perspective that's happening. LSD uh, very fundamentally uh, and, and powerfully affects uh, uh, serotonin and, and, and other basic building blocks of our consciousness, the basic chemicals that make up our consciousness and flow around in our brain. So at the very basic level, LSD and, and other psychedelics are changing people's perspective, how they directly perceive and interpret the world around them and themselves and their relationships. So, so when we talk about LSD um, uh, being this tool for consciousness change, um, or, or in the 60s it was talked about as a tool for revolution, now it's being talked about as a medicine or a scientific tool or a spiritual technology. Um, uh, um, you know, um, it's, it's, it's a different... Um, it's a different approach to the drug. Uh, it's not one that is based in the fear of what it's going to do to us, mm -hmm. but rather in uh, uh, what can we do with it specifically 
to transform our perspective or transform uh, patients' perspectives in clinical settings um, uh, about their situation. So LSD, because it can cause this, 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 this profound change in perspective, that in certain settings, um, such as the clinical research setting, um, or in other supportive settings um, where you have a compassionate um, a guide or a sitter or somebody um, uh, or a therapist, somebody who can provide compassionate support to somebody who's having an extreme, intense um, LSD-induced experience, um, uh, then the, the LSD can produce a change in perspective that enables people to see past uh, their, their present anxiety and to see it in the context of a much larger connectedness. Um, is what people often say between uh, themselves and, and, and others. And it's that connectedness, that loosening of, of, of boundaries as they're perceived by people that, that um, uh, LSD um, creates uh, and, 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 and are part of the reason that, that LSD can, can produce these profound changes in perspective. Definitely. For, yeah. for, for those that are just joining, I'm speaking with Brad Burge of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. Um, so, so what is MDMA and what has MAPS done as far as studying its effects on eliminating symptoms of PTSD? Uh, MDMA uh, is uh, uh, the acronym for methylene dioxymethamphetamine, uh, which, is a, the, which is a pure compound um, that uh, was first synthesized in, uh, um, in the uh, 1930s. Um, um, or rather, actually, it was, uh, the ni- it was 19, 1913, I believe, uh, where we're just past the 100th anniversary um, of, uh, of MDMA. Um, or rather, um, the, the 100th anniversary of MDMA was in 2012. It was first synthesized in 1912 um, by another pharmaceutical giant in Germany, uh, this time Merck. Uh, Merck was working towards um, another chemical, and they stumbled upon MDMA and then forgot about it. It was actually never tested in anybody. Now, today, we, we know MDMA uh, as the compound that is supposed to be in the street drugs ecstasy and molly. Um, uh, but in fact, the history um, is, 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 is more complicated than, than that. Just like the history of LSD um, uh, is, is, is deeply connected to its psychotherapeutic use, the history of MDMA is also connected to this. Uh, so before MDMA um, exploded into the recreational club scene um, and became known as ecstasy, it was actually first used as a psychotherapeutic tool like LSD. Uh, in the 1970s uh, and early 1980s, uh, it was actually primarily used in couples counseling. Uh, it, was, it was used in uh, psychotherapeutic sessions by a small number of therapists who were just starting to explore its therapeutic potential uh, when it became very widely known uh, in the club scene, starting in Texas and then spreading throughout the rest of the world. Um, and uh, at that point, it became known as ecstasy. Um, uh, of course, when, when you have this explosion of, of recreational um, uh, interest in a drug, uh, um, what, what we've seen historically over the last 100 years is that it gets attached to these, these much larger narratives um, of drug war-fueled propaganda of, 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 how, of how these, these, uh, um, these, these drugs can only harm us or hurt us. Um, uh, but in fact, what that does is it erases the history of these drugs, of LSD, of MDMA, um, as therapeutic tools. Mm-hmm. So right now, MAPS is, is pushing forward with a very large international research program looking at combining MDMA with psychotherapy to treat people with uh, extreme, that is, chronic treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder. 
Um, we have a lot of veterans right now um, who are coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan um, uh, with, with severe um, chronic PTSD. In fact, we have more people uh, committing suicide um, after their service than we do actually have dying in combat situations uh, in those areas. Uh, so there's the psychological uh, impact of these wars um, and just generally of living in a culture that is so disconnected and is increasingly reliant on technology. PTSD is a huge problem. Um, so uh, we're looking at MDMA combined with psychotherapy because there's a lot of evidence um, uh, originally um, uh, anecdotal um, or case reports from these early, um, early sessions that were conducted legally in the 70s uh, and early 80s, and now from, from, from larger uh, clinical studies showing that MDMA can actually help with uh, uh, treating PTSD when it's combined with psychotherapy. Uh, so MAPS was actually founded uh, in 1986 as a direct response to the criminalization of MDMA. Uh, because that criminalization led to uh, such a shutdown of research, um, uh, the founder of MAPS, Rick Doblin, um, who's my boss and the current executive director, uh, um, uh, decided um, to, to bring people together to try to restore legitimacy to the field um, uh, for, for what he saw to be a, 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 a major loss of a powerful psychotherapeutic tool. So since then, MAPS has been working to restore legitimacy through our public education and through uh, our, our work with the government. Um, to MDMA-assisted psychotherapy research. Um, last year, uh, we published the long-term follow-up results to uh, our first completed Phase two study. That's, um, that's a study leading towards eventual uh, uh, prescription approval of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. Um, and that, um, that, that, study, that, that study showed that, um, uh, that, that, that MDMA-assisted psychotherapy can actually help people overcome for a long period of time up to three and a half years following just two MDMA-assisted psychotherapy sessions. Um, that, 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 that just these two psychotherapy sessions can alleviate PTSD uh, uh, way down the road. Uh, so we're, we're, we're working with a model of treatment using MDMA that is very different from the standard prescription model of treating illness, where we're not giving somebody a drug every day for the rest of their life and saying that this is a treatment, but, but rather uh, in the course of just a couple of sessions, we're finding that, that people can actually overcome their PTSD and reduce symptoms to the point where they can move on with their lives, um, again, just after a couple of sessions. Um, and this is really exciting research because it totally transforms the, the, the existing drug war narrative um, about what these drugs are um, and, and, and what they can do. Um, and if we're seeing these positive results, then it's really hard to maintain the illusion that um, they, they, they can only be harmful tools. And once the FDA has rescheduled, if, if we continue to get these results, um, uh, um, if we um, continue to get positive results in our studies and, and we get enough uh, contributions, we get enough financial support um, from, from individuals who want to see this, this, this work go forward, we'll actually be able to move this through um, all the way. So if the FDA approves MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD, then that, that, that speaks to its, schedule, uh, its scheduled status as well, uh, you know, because you know, the, the, the schedules are based on, on um, whether a drug has medical use in addition to its abuse potential. And if we find that MDMA actually has a lower abuse potential than we thought, um, as well as a medical use, and it's hard to maintain this, uh, this, this, 
this, this scheduling process. That's exactly what the government is facing right now um, with, with medical marijuana, is what do you do uh, when your federal definition of whether a drug has medical use conflicts not only with scientific evidence, um, but with public opinion. Definitely. Um, let's talk about some other um, psychedelic drugs. What is DMT? Uh, D DMT is dimethyltryptamine. Uh, it's, a, it's a naturally occurring psychedelic. Uh, it occurs um, in, in, in numerous plants around, um, around the planet. It also naturally occurs, uh, um, or, or a version of it naturally occurs inside human beings and other animals, um, which is to say that it's endogenous, naturally produced in the human body that closely resemble DMT, dimethyltryptamine, um, which is uh, a, a powerful, very, very potent, um, if not the most powerful known psychedelic um, it's, it's a common, uh, it's, it's the active ingredient, rather, in, in ayahuasca, um, uh, which is a psychoactive brew that's um, become increasingly popular, um, especially with uh, people uh, from North America, Canada, Europe, um, who, 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 who want to um, uh, travel down to South America and participate in indigenous-based ceremonies. Um, there's been a huge movement of people who have heard about ayahuasca's potential um, as uh, um, something that can help people with substance abuse, they can help people with anxiety and PTSD, and so people are traveling kind of en masse right now to South America and um, participating in, in, in questionable ceremonies. Um, and um, uh, because of the unregulated status of ayahuasca in most countries around the world, there's actually a lot of risk to using it. Um, so, so DMT is 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 this is this compound that's 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 rather mischievous in a sense because, because here we have um, the scientific establishment looking at it as a really interesting um, focus of, of investigation and we're finding it here within the body but then also because of the regulatory uncertainty and the, um, and the continued criminalization of DMT and other psychedelics, um, uh, we also have these, these huge unregulated zones where, where people are actually getting hurt. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and there's not adequate protection and not adequate safeguards, not adequate guarantees that it's a pure substance. Um, so, so um, you know, again, we have um, DMT, the psychedelic, kind of at this border area where it's really, really interesting and fascinating. It offers a lot of new, new insights uh, into our bodies uh, and into uh, how medicine can work, but it's also, um, from a political or social standpoint, um, a rather troublesome character. Definitely, and uh, ayahuasca is also yeah. used in, in some spiritual settings as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. ayahuasca. That's 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 where it's it's, it's traditionally used. It's mm -hmm. it's been traditionally used in, in, in South American spiritual and uh, uh, religious ceremonies. There's actually a couple of um, uh, a couple of uh, religious groups um, who have uh, received permission to use ayahuasca in religious ceremonies um, for that purpose. Um, of course, we live in a very connected culture these days, and uh, nothing stays uh, under the table for long. And so um, when you have these religious groups, you also have other people hearing about it and learning about it and wanting to know more about it. Um, so, so we have this expansion of interest in ayahuasca and policies that just can't keep up with that interest, or at least not so far. Definitely. What about... Um uh, they, they call it, this is the slang term for, for, but magic mushrooms, what, what are magic mushrooms? Uh, uh, you're asking about psilocybin. Mm -hmm. um, psilocybin is um, one of the active compounds in um, so-called magic mushrooms. Um, psilocybin was actually um, 
uh, one of the first psychedelics to enter the mainstream uh, um, Western European consciousness. Um, uh, in, in, in the U.S., the history is very recent. Um, mushrooms have been recognized for thousands of years, again, thousands of years, by, by people, um, indigenous groups in Central America and South America. Um, and really around the world, you find references to psychoactive mushrooms. So, so again, this is something that human beings have probably evolved with for a, for a, for a very long time. But in terms of our present culture, um, uh, uh, there were... Uh, um, there was a small group of anthropologists who in the 1950s, Gordon Wasson was one of these, um, who, who traveled to South America and Central America and discovered these psychoactive mushrooms and then brought them back and showed them to their friends and then it expanded into the, um, uh, into the culture from there. Um, we've also um, uh, supported some research uh, with psilocybin mushrooms. There is some excellent work, um, not sponsored by MAPS, but rather by our colleagues at the Hefter Research Institute, which is another major research organization, uh, looking at the neuroscientific um, and, and healing potential of these drugs. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's a really great new study looking at the connections between uh, psilocybin and mystical experiences. Um, there's been some research um, recently um, and um, ongoing at Johns Hopkins University. Um, where, where um, uh, the research has shown um, uh, so, sort of how these mushrooms are working in the brain um, uh, and um, how they might be um, effective therapeutic tools to reduce anxiety associated with um, coming to the end of your life. So people with advanced stage cancer, uh, leukemia, um, uh, other advanced illnesses uh, who are experiencing profound anxiety, uh, there's research uh, suggesting that um, because of the mystical type experiences, that these uh, um, mushrooms can, that the psilocybin in particular can induce, uh, these 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 might be very powerful therapeutic tools. So again, we have uh, we have these uh, international researchers um, working hard to um, reframe the story about psychedelics um, and show that they they, they do have um, various particular uses um, um, that can be beneficial for people in certain contexts. Definitely. For those just joining, I'm speaking with Brad Burge of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. So let's talk about how the war on drugs makes psychedelics worse in a few different ways. So first, uh, the issue of controlled environments. Just like uh, how sex workers cannot go to the police if they've been robbed or raped because they would also get in trouble, how does the fact that psychedelics are illegal cause people to try and hide it and be underground about it and use them in poor conditions? Uh, yeah, I think you pretty much summarized it there. You know, if, if we have a if we have a pol if we have an attitude where we're uh, um, uh, afraid of the drugs and we're afraid to talk about them, and, and people who are using them or who see their friends use them um, are afraid to bring it up because they're afraid of uh, incarceration um, or some kind of negative repercussion, uh, then you're actually increasing the risk that's associated with these drugs um, because there aren't open doors. Uh, for people to get the help they need should um, um, should difficult situations happen, and they do happen um, because because people lack uh, the education necessary um, to use these drugs responsibly um, or 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 indeed to choose not to use them um, there's so little education in schools uh, in public uh, venues um, so little honest education um, uh, about these drugs that uh, when, when people do decide to use them, 
they have no idea what they're getting into. All they've heard is these drugs are going to hurt you. These drugs are going to make you crazy. And when you have powerful drugs, especially with psychedelics, if that's what's going through your mind when you're under their effects, that is what you're going to experience. Mm -hmm. um, so so the, the, the very air of criminality and having to hide can, can, can increase the psychological damage um, of, 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 of using the drugs um, irresponsibly, which is to say too much or in the wrong situations or for the wrong reasons. Definitely. Uh, there, there's also the quantity and quality issue. How does prohibition create the likelihood of a psychedelic created in a lab with maybe unsanitary conditions, inconsistent chemical makeups, uh, chemicals that are not safe or, or, or nor responsibly sourced, as well as just incon inconsistent dosing due to those factors? Uh, yeah, definitely. We're seeing that a lot. Right now, there's an explosion of media interest in Mali. Uh, I, 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 you know, I hate to you know, harp on this one, but you know, Miley Cyrus just came out yesterday and said, you know, actually, to be honest, I was singing about the drug. <laughs> um, if anybody's been following it, you know, se se several months ago, one of these songs came up, and uh, she, uh, she, she was accused of, of, of talking about uh, Molly, which is a slang term for black market that is illegal MDMA. Although, of course, it usually doesn't even contain MDMA, it often contains other things. Um, you know, so so so, she, so here's a here's a pop culture icon who's who's admitting, yes, I'm talking about this drug in my song because people are using it um, at parties, and I'm calling this out, and I'm saying that this is actually happening. Um, that's a really really valuable step, um, recognizing that it's happening because people are using these drugs. Um, a lot of the media firestorm recently around Molly has been the result of of, of people. Uh, uh, purchasing uh, uh, drugs at uh, at raves or nightclubs, um, these uh, these already unsafe, dark environments, um, um, and they're, they're they're purchasing drugs, and they're told that it's MDMA, or they're told that it's Molly, or they're told that it's ecstasy, or they're told that it's anything at all. Um, you'd be surprised what people will put in their mouths these days, um, just because um, just just because of the lack of education. Um, they don't know what they're getting into or what these drugs are. They just know that it's fun and dangerous, and that's a pretty good way to get a kid to do something. Um, so so in, 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 instead of being MDMA, um, they're, they're putting anything into their mouths. They're, they're, they're taking a lot of drugs. In fact, there were a number of PMA deaths. Um, PMA is a drug that is highly toxic in large doses, especially when combined with alcohol. Um, and uh, so when you get these high-profile or large numbers of deaths or accidents, these tragedies that are happening when young people are taking drugs, they don't know what's in them. Um, uh, it's, it's important to, to, to have an honest public education and honest, um, open conversations about what's actually going on here. You know, why are they getting contaminated substances? You know, obviously, the war on drugs has been going on for, for four decades, and people are not taking less drugs. There are more drugs on the market. There are just as many, if not more, fatalities and disasters that are happening with these drugs. Easy to look up these statistics, and the media will tell you in the headlines um, that, that this is happening. So, so clearly, this, this, this law enforcement approach to keeping people safe is not, is, is, is not working, because people are not safe. Um, so the alternative to that is to have an open, honest conversation about what these drugs are, which is to say they are powerful. Not everybody should take them. You should be careful about where you're going to do it, if you're going to do it, and you need to know what the risks are. Mm -hmm. um, 
then the lack of regulation prevents what exists for food products, which is accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, a, an illegal drug manufacturer has no accountability. You know, if, if, if they slap a label, and they don't on their product, if they say a product is something, there's, there's, there's no license that they're going to lose if it's not that, and somebody reports them. Uh, nobody's going to tell on the drug dealer for um, selling them a bad product because in purchasing the product, they've committed a crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's no system of, of accountability there. And, and uh, as, as long as um, there is no system of accountability, um, people will continue to take advantage of that and uh, people with lower ethical standards than you, you or I will continue selling dangerous drugs to kids. Definitely. Uh, there's also a quality quantity issue of plant-based organic hallucinogens such as mushrooms and ayahuasca in a black market. People can't farm them uh, organically. There are, all, there are all types of issues like using water with fluoride or chlorine in, in a gen- or generally chemically polluted or germ-filled water uh, for plants, genetic, possible genetic engineering or bioengineering, which I haven't heard of but is always possible in the future, uh, soil that has residues of harmful chemical fertilizers or pesticides or um, or worse, um, and the fact that since it's illegal, farmers couldn't uh, hire an organic consulting firm to test and certify their conditions where they uh, produce these plant-based um, uh, hallucinogens. Um, what can bringing these drugs above ground, above the black market, do to improve the farming quality of organic hallucinogens? Yeah, great. You know, I just uh, I, um, I, I learned recently. Uh, where a lot of the raw material for the ecstasy sold in the United States and Europe is coming from. Uh, and it's coming from the Amazon. Um, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a huge manufacturing uh, uh, process, an illegal manufacturing industry in the Amazon for harvesting sassafras trees. Um, sassafras trees are, are, are core parts of um, uh, huge parts of the uh, Amazonian ecosystem. Um, and, and removing these trees in an unsustainable way destroys the environment and all the ways we become familiar with unsustainable farming practices destroying the environment. And so these black market organizations, these massive cartels are, 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 are organizing these harvesting operations. They don't care about the environment. Again, there's no system of, of, of accountability. Um, uh, cutting down these sassafras trees, um, which can be used to uh, extract um, uh, uh, saffron oil, uh, which is a, a key component of MDMA, um, which is um, often, but often not, what's put in ecstasy in Mali. Mm-hmm. So by, 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 by opening up, um, by, by, by creating regulations um, uh, for, for, uh, for um, the production of ayahuasca, um, for the production of MDMA, for the production of any number of things, you're creating systems of accountability uh, and allowing... Uh, um, and allowing sustainable farming practices to, to, to replace them. Definitely. And certainly you mentioned the black market, and that's what, one of the points I wanted to bring up. Cartels don't really care about people's well-being nor customer satisfaction. Uh, there is right. certainly the issue of smuggling and, and even smuggling drugs and body parts making things even more unsanitary. How does the black market in general make things unsafe? Uh, well, there's, there's, there's two ways that the black market makes these unsafe, um, uh, and, and, and one is by the actual contamination uh, of, of, of the drug itself. 
So again, when we're dealing with clinical psychedelic research, we're dealing with a pure compound that is regulated where every molecule is accounted for. Mm -hmm. In the black market, there's, there's no system like that. There's no form that they fill out guaranteeing that their compound is what they claim it is. The other way that uh, the, the, the uh, safety of drugs is decreased and the harm is increased um, by the black market um, is, is, is by the actual violence that they produce. So there's, um, there, there's conflicts between cartels and, and people often get, get caught in the crossfire as, we're, as we often see at, at border areas. Um, so, so again, we have, this, we have this, this illegal drug trade that as a result of the criminality of it is, uh, is, 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 is reinforcing these, these cartels and causing more violence to happen and more contaminated product to, 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 enter, um, to enter our bodies. Mm -hmm. uh, for those just joining, I'm speaking with Brad Burge of MAPS. That's the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Uh, what are some ways people that are using psychedelics can make sure that their environment, their surroundings, people they're with is, is controlled? Uh, you know, again, such as who are they around, where they're at, maybe even diet, whether or not they have used the bathroom recently, which may cause anxiety and, and other factors. And if they do end up with what is known as a bad trip, how can they deal with it? Uh, well, I, I, I want to tell you a little bit about the Zendo Project, which is uh, our psychedelic harm reduction initiative. Um, uh, and uh, looking at, at, at how we put this together and um, the purposes of the Zendo Project, I think, can uh, really convey a lot of the um, uh, principles behind um, um, having safe and productive psychedelic um, uh, experiences. And, and, and number one, which is exactly what we're seeing um, in, um, in our research, is that um, having a safe space, um, which is to say um, that um, you know, there's no such thing as a safe drug, um, but we can make the space within which um, the drug is used um, be safer. So in, in, uh, in, in, with the Zendo Project, we're taking psychedelic harm reduction services to festivals and community events where people are using uh, uh, psychedelics. Um, and oftentimes they're taking too, too much um, or, or because of their, their emotional state, which is to say they're set, um, or just because of the... Uh, um, the, the, the craziness and the disorientation of being um, in such a place at a festival on drugs, um, uh, or, or which is to say their setting, um, uh, people can have very, very difficult psychedelic experiences. So um, what the Zendo Project is, is uh, um, uh, it's about 100 volunteers um, that we're bringing out to Burning Man this year um, to provide compassionate support for people who are undergoing difficult psychedelic experiences. Um, and that just means talking with somebody and being responsive to what they're going through. Um, the goal of this is to show that uh, rather than locking somebody away, which is to say taking a criminal justice approach or, or um, uh, diagnosing somebody or, or treating them for mental illness, which is to say taking a mental illness approach, uh, we can take a public health approach to psychedelics where we're recognizing that people are using them and we're recognizing that the people are using them too much um, sometimes and that we don't need to lock them up and we don't need to drug them in order to uh, reduce the harm. Um, in fact, that actually increases the damage uh, that, that happens as a result of taking these drugs. Oh, yeah. so the Zendo Project is a psychedelic harm reduction service in the sense that we're reducing the harms associated with using psychedelics, which people are doing, simply by providing compassionate support, a comfortable place to rest, and water. Uh, right now, we have a large community of supporters on our Indiegogo campaign, um, and uh, looks like we're going to have more resources than ever, um, thanks to that support, to provide those services to people at events. So keeping in mind you know, the people that you're with, the, 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 the setting, the 
drug. Um, uh, um, all of these things are really important in, 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 in keeping these experiences as safe as possible. But again, um, you know, there's no such thing as a safe drug, um, and there are risks to everything. And um, if, if there is ever a reason not to use a drug, um, uh, it's, it's advised not to use it. Um, and when we have an unregulated system, any drug that is purchased illegally, you can't be sure what's in it. Um, there's, there's no system of, of accountability. Um, so so we, we have to make our own decisions. We have to decide what we put into our bodies um, is a basic human right. Um, but as long as we have this unregulated system, these drugs purchased illegally are going to be dangerous. So, so again, a crucial principle of harm reduction related to psychedelics is if there's ever a reason not to take it, and with an unregulated system, there is often, if not always, a reason not to take it, it shouldn't be done. So yeah. taking this very practical and ethical approach to psychedelics is exactly what MAPS is trying to do and trying to encourage in our public education so that we don't just have this knee-jerk fear response to psychedelics where we end up in a criminal justice approach where we're locking people up or a mental illness approach where we think everybody who's taking psychedelics is, is mentally sick. Mm -hmm. um, instead, we have a public health approach that is, um, that is practical and rational and it seems that support is growing for it. Definitely, and I would encourage listeners to check out MAPS Zendo project on Indiegogo. Um, so we're talking about how, how prohibition makes things unsafe. Let's talk about how, how for minors, um, prohibition doesn't make these drugs go away at all. It makes it just them more accessible to minors since dealers never check for ID. Um, what are the risks associated associated with that? Uh, well, well, the risks of, uh, associated with dealers not checking for ID are just that dealers aren't checking for ID. Mm -hmm. It's that it's, it's people, it's that people are, 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 there's, there's, there's no regulation because of the because of the lack of education uh, uh, surrounding the drugs, uh, because we're told uh, that, that the only use of these drugs is negative, um, uh, um, young people want to uh, revolt against that. And when they find that something like marijuana is not as harmful as they've been told, uh, what are they going to think about LSD? What are they going to think about heroin? What are they going to think about tobacco? Mm -hmm. Um, they're going to think that they've been lied to because they have about the real risks of these drugs. So, so um, in the absence of, of, of public education and clear and honest conversations, which MAPS is trying to encourage, um, uh, we're, we're, we're going to continue to have, have um, these disasters happening uh, when, when young people are going to um, dealers and um, ending up not knowing what they're taking. Mm -hmm. So, so how would this play out policy-wise? How could it be regulated to ensure that minors do not get it, that people don't get behind the wheel of the car, but at the same time allow for safe and open uh, competitive uh, area for production of these drugs with reasonable safety standards, as well as how it, it would affect law enforcement, leaving peaceful people alone if they don't get behind the wheel of a car and, and respecting their civil liberties? Yeah, coming up with a uh, safe and sane policy towards drugs is something that I've never seen done anywhere in the history of human existence. I mean, we are, um, as a culture, as a society, struggling to deal with drugs, um, whether they're legal or illegal. The number one, prob uh, the number one drug that people have problems with um, uh, is, is prescription painkillers. 
Oh yeah. Uh, uh, that's 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 far more abuse than any illegal drug. The statistics for that are clear, and um, uh, so so we're struggling to deal with tobacco. It's a huge killer. Alcohol is a major killer. Um, you know, uh, we don't have a functioning drug policy for the drugs that are legal, mm-hmm. much less mm-hmm. the ones that are currently illegal. People are dying all the time. Um, people are put on too many drugs. People are addicted to prescription pharmaceuticals. Um, there's there's more um, um, intense lobbying happening between the pharmaceutical industry and uh, Washington than, than ever before. Um, pharmaceutical companies are making trillions of dollars. It's a it's a dismal kind of situation, uh, which it's it's clearly. It's, it's clearly not. So what MAPS is trying to do in our research is to just create spaces. And these can start off as small spaces. If it's, if it's a small space of a few hundred square feet in the Zendo project, if it's a, if it's a, a research center where we're doing a clinical study, um, if it's one of our conferences where it's a large space where a lot of people are coming together talking about these things, we're trying to create spaces where we can have these clear and honest open dialogues about psychedelics. Um, and what we're trying to do through those dialogues is to imagine and create these spaces um, where it works. So if we can move MDMA-assisted psychotherapy uh, through the FDA process, uh, again, with enough uh, financial support and with uh, continued good results, um, we can show certain aspects um, uh, of using a psychedelic like MDMA that can make it safer and more effective. Um, so we have, um, we're, we're creating settings, um, we're creating a vision of a future where psychedelics can be used for particular purposes by particular people um, in certain settings. So the idea is that we're going to have these clinics, uh, clinics like methadone clinics um, um, or other small treatment centers where people can come in and receive MDMA-assisted psychotherapy or other forms of psychedelic therapy in the context of these clinics. So it's not like people are taking them home in jars and they can share them with their friends. They come into the clinic and they get one, they go through a therapy session and they stay overnight and then they go home the next day, probably driven by a friend, just like you'd have your wisdom teeth out, except it would be psychedelic therapy for trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, so here's one of these, these, these contexts where it will be possible. And you know, we don't see, we don't envision a world where anybody can use any of these things for any purpose at, at, at any time. And the reason for that is because education is necessary. Um, because these tools, that is to say psychedelics like cars and guns, they are dangerous. They are powerful tools. Um, and in the wrong hands, used for the wrong reasons, they can do a lot of harm. Um, so, in addition to allowing people the freedom to choose what goes into their bodies, we also need to provide education. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea is that people will have the ability to choose to use these tools in ways that have been tried and true, and that are and that are and that are safer um, than going off and using them on your own. Um, because the whole history of human use of these substances is long enough, and now the research is strong enough that um, there's a lot of evidence, there's a lot of practical advice out there um, for us human beings who are trying to put these tools to their greatest possible use. Definitely. Um, can, can you inform our listeners uh, where they can find MAPS online and, and in social media, and if you have any final thoughts? 
Yeah, we uh, we we try to be as open as possible. We, we share all of our research information, um, all of our research protocols, the current status of our studies, recent media about psychedelics, um, upcoming events, new ways for people to get involved or volunteer, um, ideas for students who want to learn more about doing psychedelic research or making it a career. We keep all of that on our website at maps. Org. It's full of information. Um, we also have a really active social media presence, so a great way to stay involved in the conversation is to check us out on Facebook. Um, we have hundreds of videos um, um, with, with some of the latest psychedelic science um, research results um, uh, that we bring together from around the world um, on our YouTube station. Um, and um, again, check out the Zendo project on Indiegogo and help us complete our psychedelic harm reduction. We could use, really use the help. Definitely. And I've been speaking here with Brad Burge of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, MAPS.org. Brad, thank you very, very much for joining the program. Thanks, Alex. It's been great to be here. If you missed any part of the episode, the podcast will be up tomorrow at iTunes. Just search for Free Thought and look for Free Thought AAC. Be sure to subscribe. It is all free there. My guest in the previous hour was Davi Barker of Muslims for Liberty. Uh, and, of course, my guest in this hour was Brad Burge of Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And uh, I, I do think that we should do things like bring raves above ground, you know, not criminalize people and not also not criminalize the production. Because when you, when you criminalize the production, it goes underground. There's no accountability for what is actually in those substances so that people can actually be safe. Consenting adults can actually know what it is they're putting in their bodies because the market is competitive and uh, protects against fraud and, uh, and you know, selling, you know, uh, you know no liability caps, uh, maybe, maybe some uh, regulations on, on production, but I often think that regulations on the actual production um, don't often work they actually place burdens upon people uh, and actually just prevent entrepreneurship. But, uh, you know, if they, if they were to be held accountable for, for every molecule and also check for ID, and then, then you know, raves would be a, a safe place and uh, you wouldn't have these things. But, of course, politicians don't play, pay attention to science. They pay attention to zealotry and politics and money. Yes, and especially... Uh, in the police unions. Um, speaking of which, that brings me to the news. This one at the at this top of the hour is brought to you by copblock.org. This is the copblock.org police accountability report. And it airs on LRN.fm. Before you cross the street, you better look both ways or we'll throw you in the pokey for a dozen days. And all around the county, every woman and man knows We'll pull you over just to play our banjo The Police Accountability Report Brought to you by CopLock.org CopLock is a decentralized project supported by a diverse group of individuals united by their shared goals of police accountability, education of individual rights, and the dissemination of effective tactics to utilize while filming police. From Keene in the Shire, the Liberty Media Capital of the World, this is Daryl W. Perry, host of the Police Accountability Report, brought to you by CopBlock.org. This week, a couple of stories that should cause anyone critically thinking to see that those wearing badges aren't always operating with the best of intentions. 
Arkansas sheriff's deputies tied a man to a chair for eight hours and beat him until his teeth were knocked out from his mouth after a traffic ticket the man claims in court. Anthony Westbrook sued Saline County, its sheriff Bruce Pennington, and Deputy Calvin Reed in Saline County Court. He claims the defendants have created an atmosphere of terror and torture at the Saline County Detention Center. Westbrook also sued five Jane Doe deputies, claims he was beaten and unconstitutionally restrained for 10 hours after his arrest and medical treatment. He claims the Doe deputies at the Saline County Detention Center not only watched the beating, but refused to intervene and conspired between themselves to destroy video evidence. After being arrested and detained, Anthony Westbrook was handcuffed, restrained, and beaten by Deputy Calvin Reed until his teeth were knocked from his mouth, and he suffered facial and jaw and other physical injuries and other injuries constituting excessive and unconstitutional force, Westbrook says in the complaint. Following the beating by Deputy Calvin Reed, Anthony Westbrook sought help and medical care from the employees at the center and instead was unreasonably and unconstitutionally restrained for a period of 10 hours in violation of his constitutional rights. Westbrook claims the deputies threatened him with further unconstitutional punishment if he continued to request help. The defendants not only failed to provide such protective help, but became agitated and intentionally ignored the injuries of the plaintiff after he was injured. The complaint continues, Following plaintiff's beating and injury, the defendants conspired between themselves, under the guidance of the supervising official for the detention center, to misrepresent the facts and circumstances involving the beating and injury of Anthony Westbrook to obscure their acts to avoid accountability for what they had done including destroying video evidence of the beating and detention. Westbrook claims that Saline Detention Center officials have a history of beating inmates, so much so that the beatings are, quote, a part of the official custom and practices at the Saline County Detention Center. In other news, a Buckner, Illinois police officer, William P. McKinney, is being charged with involuntary manslaughter, aggravated battery, and official misconduct in the July 11th death of Roy D. Barnhart. Franklin County Attorney Evan Owen said McKinney was indicted by a Franklin County Grand Jury on July 19th. Barnhart died several days after an altercation with McKinney on July 7th. The altercation occurred after McKinney, a full-time officer with the Buckner Police Department for about three years, responded to a call reporting a fight in progress at the residence on Main Street in the village. According to the indictment, McKinney pushed a handcuffed Barnhart to the ground and struck him in the head. McKinney was arrested and taken to Franklin County Jail, where bond was set at $500,000. That's this week's Police Accountability Report, brought to you by CopBlock.org. I hope you'll all take a moment to consider just what it is you are being forced to pay for with taxation and speak out against the violence and corruption. And as always, check us out online at copblock.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash copblock, follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash copblock, and check us out on YouTube at youtube.com slash thecopblock. Until next week, stay safe and remember that badges don't grant extra rights. When you're in our county and you Another interesting police story is that Concord, New Hampshire wants a Bearcat, which is an armored vehicle funded by the Department of Homeland Security, 
specifically to go after Free State Project participants as well as Occupy New Hampshire participants. Now, I air PSAs for the Free State Project on my radio show, and I am sympathetic to the Occupy movement. Uh, and now I live in Encinitas where they have taken bribes or grants from the Department of Homeland Security. And since I support the Free State Project, Ron Paul and, and Liberty, uh, with peaceful action, of course, either way, will I have a tank in my future? Am I a domestic terrorist, according to some politician colluding with the DHS and city government? You know, this police state stuff is getting pretty real. And, you know, they say it's for terrorism and Muslims. But I think it's really for people that speak out against the status quo. As Henry Kissinger said, those that oppose the international system are terrorists. Really, the international financial system, the central banking cartel that prints money, that robs the value out of hard-earned dollars of everybody in this country and everybody in the world... Every time you print a new dollar, you know, theft out of everybody's pocket, opposing that is terrorism. Where we're going as a, as a country is, is just frightening. And yes, the city of Encinitas has a bear cat in Concord, New Hampshire, wants one. Again, specifically to go after Free State Project participants. Well... Uh, we're going to play some songs related to my guest about LSD and everything like that after the break. But you're listening to KKSM and LRN.FM here. I'm your host, Alex Fiddle of Free Thought Radio, freethoughtmedia.org. You're listening to KKSM and 1320 Oceanside. Do you feel like there's nothing you can do about the inexorable growth of government? I did too, before I heard about the Free State Project. The Free State Project is a project to get 20,000 Liberty lovers to move to New Hampshire to have liberty in our lifetimes. Early movers for the FSP are getting elected, involved in their communities, and participating in civil disobedience. Call 888-377-2515 now to learn more about the Free State Project. 888-377-2515 or visit freestateproject.org. Is that really terrorism? Since time began, tyrants have taken aim at personal liberties. Now there's a movie that aims back. The government has no more right to tell us what to put in our bodies than they have to take our guns or tell us what books we can read. I wonder how prohibitionists would feel if they saw medical marijuana vastly improve the life of someone dear to them. Today, many cops who enforce pot laws do so only because it provides them with cushy jobs, good benefits, and a chance to push people around. I was an undercover narcotics officer. The drug war is nothing but a farce. Six drug police were eaten by bears while raiding a marijuana farm. On your knees, you dirty hippies! Jesus. On your knees! What's the problem, officer? The Second Amendment says you gotta keep you and your gat intact. Guns and Weed, The Road to Freedom. A film by Michael W. Dean and Nima Vidati. Available from gunsandweed.com. Want your business to reach students of Palomar College? Want your name to reach a global listening audience? Want to support an educational program? Then sponsor KKSM. KKSM offers affordable rates, personalized spots, and global exposure for your business. Call our advertising line at 760-744-1150, extension 2442, to find out how you can sponsor KKSM and receive a tax write-off. 
With rates starting at $100, sponsoring KKSM is an affordable way to get your business's name out there. Call 760-744-1150, extension 2442, to start advertising with KKSM. KKSM Oceanside. Hey, man, you got any peas or beans or anything like that? AM 1320, the radio revolution. Welcome back to Free Thought Radio. I'm your host, Alex Fiddle, freethoughtmedia.org. My guests for tonight were, in the first hour, Davi Barker of Muslims for Liberty. That's muslims4liberty.org. He also does shinybadges.com. And since I just played the uh, the uh, coplock.org police accountability report news podcast, uh, he has uh, uh, made a shiny badge that looks like a police badge. It's a commemorative copblock.org police badge, and it says shiny badges don't grant extra rights. <laughs> and so they're actually individually numbered because, you know, when you're filming police, you usually ask them for their badge number. <laughs> now you can be accountable, too, as a cop blocker. <laughs> um, in, in the second hour, I had Brad Burge of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. We broke down the myths and fear-mongering and government propaganda in regards to psychedelic drugs and in regards to LSD and MDMA, uh, that really uh, heroin and cocaine and alcohol and tobacco are the worst things for you. There are definitely risks for doing psychedelics, and it's not for everybody. And prohibition makes everything worse because there's no consistency in the molecular molecular makeup of those psychedelic drugs because people make them in who knows what conditions, and they put them up their rear ends and condoms and stuff that's gross i don't why can't it be legal and be made in more sanitary consistent conditions of course politics and fear and zealotry and money get in the way of science and treating people with dignity and respecting their civil liberties and their self-ownership which is why it is still illegal unfortunately but uh in order to break down those myths i want to play two songs that have to do with psychedelic drugs and aptly titled this one is called LSD by the band Hallucinogen which is kind of like the pre uh, uh, Spangle uh, band you could say and then after that is a song called Backroads of My Mind by Electric Apricot and they're sort of a parody band they're like the Spinal Tap uh, it was a movie made by uh, Les Claypool of Primus it's kind of like the Spinal Tap of like psychedelic jam bands <laughs> But I, I think it's like, you know, like Frank Zappa made the doo-wop album. It's like, a, it's like a half tribute because, you know, I don't think they really want to bash on that. But, you know, you get you get the... Uh, it's a really funny movie. <laughs> but, you know, also, you know, I, 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 it still is like a half tribute, just like the Frank Zappa thing to doo-wop was. So uh, it was a great movie, too. Uh, Electric Apricot, The Road to Fester Roo. So this is LSD by Hallucinogen. And then after that, Backroads of My Mind. By Electric Apricot here on KKSM, the Radio Revolution, and LRN.FM, the Liberty Radio Network. I believe with uh, the advent of acid, we discovered a new way to think. And it had to do with piecing together new thoughts in your mind. Why is it that people think it's so evil? What is it about it that, that is, scares people? Because they're afraid that there's more to reality. 
yourself and start looking on the inside And everything that you never knew, well you can now know So grab your hat and your walking shoes, pick yourself up and go Walking down the back roads of my mind Strolling through the kaleidoscope of inner space and time scope of inner space and time walking down the back roads of my mind going walking down the back roads of my mind let's walk strolling through the kaleidoscope of inner space and time walking down the back roads of my mind i'm walking down the back roads of my mind
What does freedom mean? Tune in to LRN.FM to find out. LRN.FM is the Liberty Radio Network, a collection of live talk radio and podcasts, all coming from a principled pro-liberty perspective. LRN.FM show hosts aren't left, right, or conspiracy kooks. You can tune in 24-7 to LRN.FM via your phone, computer, satellite, and more. Listen free anytime at LRN.FM. That's LRN. KKSM. We must be flipping out. AM 1320. The Radio Revolution. Welcome back. Free Thought Radio, freethoughtmedia.org. Of course, you get part of that media includes television. That's the YouTube channel. Head over there. Uh, usually, if I record videos like during a Skype chat with guests, throw up the webcam capture on there. Uh, I did that with my guest for tonight, Davi Barker of Muslims for Liberty. Um, but I want to talk about some of these news headlines. 
so actually, before I get to what I've written down here, let me get to this one regarding uh, Adam Kokesh. This is from Reason.com, uh, written by Brian Doherty. Anarcho-activist Adam Kokesh held without bond for filming himself performing an utterly harmless crime. Uh, and he was released from state jail for possession of hallucinogenic mushrooms, also not a crime, and thrown into, then th- redirected right back into federal prison for a video he made on July 4th of him loading and cocking a shotgun, nonviolent, exercising his Second Amendment rights nonviolently without pointing it at anybody, without his finger on the trigger. Actually, Feinstein should be guilty more of that because rules of firearms. One, do not always treat a gun as if it is loaded. Take the gun seriously. You know, (laughs) people who don't think of it like that way could make some deadly mistakes. Number two, never put your finger on the trigger unless you intend to shoot. So, you know, you know, do the keep them straight off the trigger, past the trigger and the whole trigger whole thing. Uh, until you're ready to shoot. Number three, don't point it at anything you in, you don't intend to destroy. So Feinstein violated all those things. She probably didn't care that the gun, you know, wasn't treating it as the gun were always loaded. She was pointing it at people, and she had her hand on the trigger, and it was an assault rifle. And she has the audacity to pass gun control. But here's the article. Anarcho-activist Adam Kokesh was ordered held without bond on charges of loading a forbidden shotgun in D.C. An act he filmed as a deliberate political theater, reports radio station WTOP in D.C. From their report, quote, A D.C. Superior Court judge has ordered a veteran, Marine vet, an Iraq veteran, an activist accused of openly carrying a shotgun in D.C.'s Freedom Plaza, ironic, held without bond. During a preliminary hearing Monday, an attorney representing Adam Kokesh argued that the stunt filmed and posted on YouTube was nothing more than political theater. The judge disagreed, ordering that Kokesh be held until his next court appearance. And this is the most dangerous part. It's from the judge. Quote, I consider your client to be a dangerous man, the judge said. This is not a political statement. End quote. Kokesh's next court date is scheduled for August 13th. Doherty continues, I see the reasoning. God forbid this man be free once again to commit an act of journalism slash activism involving a completely harmless crime. Loading a, a shotgun. Loading a banned weapon in a forbidden place. A weapon perfectly legal to use in many other places in the United States with little to no harm to anyone. His real cl- crime, of course, is his claim that he has the right to perform harmless acts the state provi- the state forbids that's a very diff- that's very difficult for agents of the state to forgive uh, Doherty continues Mike Riggs of Reason magazine on the uh, it's a link here the pointlessly excessive assault on Kokesh's home for this crime and he continues a uh, the, the theater of phony consent in this trial that's from Brian Do- Brian Doherty of reason.com and I think we should free Adam Kokesh. And full disclosure here, uh, I podcast on LRN.FM. Adam Kokesh's podcast podcasts on LRN.FM. I had him on the show twice. I think he should be free. And man, I support the Second Amendment, you know, for defensive purposes. As long as you don't use it on somebody else, it is your right to store it as 
a insurance policy, whether for a robber, rapist, a murderer, or a tyrant. The Third Amendment was written for a reason. If somebody puts a badge on and goes into your home, that's if they didn't have that badge, that would be considered breaking and entering. But because they have a badge, that grants them extra rights, and therefore they can legally break and enter into your home. That's why the Third Amendment was written, so that can never happen. The court coordinating them, that, and that's what the Second Amendment is for, written right before the Third Amendment, to prevent somebody from breaking and entering your house and taking it over from the government. Now on to Snowden, the Jamaican rapper. <laughs> Uh, if you heard the news report earlier, the rap news, um, Snowden has been granted temp asylum in Russia in order to find a definite travel plan to Latin America in a way, a route that won't have his plane rerouted by the United States government if the plane happens to fly over United States territory or NATO territory. Putin has asked Snowden to cool it on the leaks until he gets there. Russia will not extradite Snowden and is not caving to United States claims. Now, Holder is begging Russia to extradite him because they promise not to torture or assassinate Snowden. Sure, <laughs> we all know how good those promises are. In fact, Holder states that torture is illegal in the United States. A bold lie flying in the face of the United States government's torture of Gitmo detainees, force-feeding them during Ramadan during when they are supposed to be fasting, you know, torture of Bradley Manning, and in general, the way police treat average people and the whole practice of solitary confinement in U.S. prisons. People dying from malnourishment, neglect. And as if your natural rights disappear when you are not a U.S. citizen, so, you know, they're saying he, they're going to reinstate his passport temporarily on the promise not... You know, whether you're not you're a U.S. citizen, it's not in the Constitution, the word citizen, because if they didn't want to take your rights away, they could arbitrarily revoke your citizenship, making the Constitution have no teeth. And now Glenn Greenwald has reported that, indeed, low-level NSA employees can spy on Americans, and there's like millions of people with NSA security clearances to be able to do such a thing. You know? Really, when you have half the population spying on the other half, and, and these are the types of people that call him traitors, and you know, it's not really the people that support this crap, it's the control freaks, the people that benefit from this financially. Now, the SEC is asking for clearance as well for warrantless uh, email wiretaps. The NSA can now listen through your phone in your pocket as well as through smart TVs or Xbox Connect cameras, just like in 1984 with the telescreens. So we're already here in an Orwellian hell. No one seems to give a damn. And I got my uh, Verizon phone, and I'm sure the NSA can listen right in if they wanted to. So I'd like to welcome to my program the NSA here as a ghost guest. Say hi. <laughs> Republicans... Um, have moved swiftly in the past few weeks to stop Congressman Justin Amash's NSA amendment. Not a single San Diego congressional representative, including Issa, Duncan Hunter Jr., or any of the Democrats, all of them voted no against Republican Congressman Amash's NSA slaying amendment. It lost by 12 votes. Shows how much either party truly represents those they claim to serve, 
or do they view us as the servants and them as the masters? The White House, Democrats, and GOP elites issued fear-mongering statements in the hours leading up to the vote. I hope it comes back up again, and I hope it passes, passes the Senate, and let's see what Obama has to say about it. And then go to our state governments if that fails. Go to your local government. Nullify, nullify, nullify. Now, uh, going back to this Syrian thing, I want to play a video from Storm Clouds Gathering called World War Three Has Already Begun. It kind of perfectly, it kind of just really just describes the situation. Take a listen. World War Three has already begun. That's an extreme statement, one that bears a heavy burden of proof. You should be skeptical. However, it's important to note that real skepticism is not blind disbelief rather the suspension of belief until sufficient evidence is provided. In this video, we're going to provide you with that evidence. Everything we talk about here will be documented in links in the description. I strongly encourage you to do your own research and to verify what we're talking about. Let's start with the definition of a world war. World War I and World War II weren't named as such because they involved every single country on the planet, but rather because these conflicts drew in the most powerful nations and were spread out over a large geographical area. Now, though the reductionist history we're taught in school marks the beginnings of the first two world wars at specific physical flashpoints such as Hitler's invasion of Poland for Europe or the attack on Pearl Harbor for the United States, the early stages of these conflicts had actually begun to develop many years prior. For example, Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor was a culmination of many months of intentional provocation by the U.S. This was revealed in the Eight Points Bulletin which was declassified years later, but it's still never mentioned in textbooks. Likewise, the mutual defense treaties which were immediately activated by this attack were already in place, and the secondary results could have easily been predicted by anyone who had been paying attention. Unfortunately, at that time, the internet wasn't available, and the public was caught completely off guard. World War I planted the seeds for World War II, which transitioned directly into the Cold War. In the post-World War II era, the advent of the CIA and the strategy of using politically motivated NGOs to destabilize countries changed the way war was waged, placing a much greater emphasis on covert operations and proxy wars than outright combat. Such operations blurred the definition of war, particularly in the mind of the public, and it made it much harder to define clear start points and end points. Can you name all the countries the U.S. toppled between 1950 and 1991? Most people can't. The end of the Cold War and the power vacuum that the fall of the Soviet Union created invited 20 years of military expansionism on the part of the United States. And this laid the groundwork for the next global conflict. This next global conflict is what we're referring to as World War III. Now, to establish this is, in fact, a world war, let's first take a look at the geographic scope of the current conflicts underway. Afghanistan is still clearly occupied by U.S. forces, and as the official military prepares to withdraw in 2014, private military forces are being brought in. Also, there are no plans to discontinue the drone program in Afghanistan anytime soon. The Iraq war is supposedly over, and there's been a drastic drawdown of U.S. troops. However, the overt occupation is now being replaced by a covert occupation run by the CIA which has one of its largest stations in Baghdad. Obama has expanded Bush's drone program into Yemen, Somalia, Algeria, Libya, and Pakistan. In parallel, the Dagger Brigade has deployed U.S. forces to 35 African countries this year, and the Pentagon has put boots on the ground in Mali as of April. And let's not forget that Obama toppled the Libyan government in 2011. The U.S. has been running intensive war games and drills with South Korea since February, and they are ongoing in spite of the lack of media attention in the past month. North Korea is calling these drills, which included simulated nuclear strikes and naval maneuvers, wanton provocations, and rehearsals for war. This really isn't an exaggeration since the U.S. just recently signed a mutual defense treaty with South Korea, 
makes it significantly easier for the U.S. to get militarily involved in that region. The U.S. has pushed for multiple rounds of sanctions against Iran, supposedly to discourage them from building a nuke, even though the CIA and Mossad both agree that the Iranian leadership hasn't even made the decision to build a bomb, much less even start. U.S. and Israeli governments aren't one to let pesky little things like facts keep them from promoting military strikes on Iran. But since they haven't gotten much traction with this approach from the international community, they've moved on to less direct tactics. And that brings us to Syria. Iran's closest ally is Syria. And on Friday, May 3rd, 2013, Israel attacked Syria. This after their attempt at framing the Syrian government for chemical weapons fell apart. The U.S. has been stepping up its material support for the Syrian rebels, though they still publicly claim that they aren't supplying them with weapons. This is just a public relations smokescreen. On May 26, Lebanon was attacked by NATO-backed insurgents due to Hezbollah's support for the Syrian government. Russia has taken a firm stand against U.S., NATO, and Israeli attempts to topple the Syrian government, and is still planning to send a shipment of S-300 anti-aircraft missiles to the country. In response, Israel's President Netanyahu reportedly warned Putin that Moscow's sale of the sophisticated missile defense system to Assad could push the Middle East into war, and argued that the S-300 had no relevance to Assad's internal battles against rebel groups. This statement coming right on the heels of the unprovoked Israeli airstrikes on Damascus this month leaves little doubt as to what these missiles are intended for and why Israel is angry. Of course Netanyahu doesn't like this. He wants to be able to continue attacking Syria with impunity. Now this past week, Russia moved a group of warships from the Pacific Fleet into the eastern Mediterranean for the first time in decades to quote, protect Russia's interest in the region. This move counters the U.S. naval presence which has built up in the area over the past several years. Both of these moves are direct statements about their intentions regarding Syria and Iran. This is only a rough summary of the early stages of this conflict. Much is being left out here. But this should be enough to establish this is indeed a world war. Now as for the players, how are they divided? Who's allied with who? On one side we have China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, Syria, and a handful of nations in South America. The role of the South American nations in this conflict has been strictly economic, but as we'll discuss later, economics is central in this crisis. On the other side, we have the United States, Israel, and NATO, which includes most of Western Europe, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and a handful of others. So clearly the most powerful nations in the world are involved. If tomorrow a direct war between the United States and Russia were to break out, this would mark the official beginning of World War III. But obviously this wouldn't really be accurate. A proxy war between the US and Russia is already underway in Syria and in Iran. And a currency war is already underway between the United States and China. The question here is really only one of scale. How far will this go? Will the US and its allies back down before this escalates into an open war involving the big players? Obviously it's impossible to answer that question with 100% certainty. These are human decisions, and even madmen sometimes have moments of lucidity. However, when you understand why these wars are happening, it becomes clear that it is highly unlikely that the US and its allies will back down. So why is this happening? What is the motive for this aggressive posture by the United States and its allies? We've talked about this in detail in a number of videos, including the road to World War III which explains the history of the petrodollar and how it pertains to this current conflict. So we won't rehash all those details here. But to summarize, this war is a war for the control of the global financial system. The dollar is nearing the end of its days, and the powers that be know this. They could let the dollar fall and allow the rest of the world to choose their own course. But they don't want to. The powers that be would much rather take a gamble and stake it all in an attempt to control the currency that will replace the dollar. If they have it their way, this new currency will be a truly global currency. Uh, I think we've all got to move towards that opportunity, and I think the challenge also is whether we should move towards an international currency, because uh, the speculation and the complexity of currency has caused some of the irritation, uh, not only among the trading nations, but among individuals.
That was Evelyn Rothschild speaking, by the way. Global currency will be accompanied by global government, which they will claim is necessary to prevent another tragic war like the one they're setting off right now. It's a classic problem-reaction-solution setup, where those that create the problem manipulate the public into accepting a solution that puts more power into their hands. They are going to attempt this one way or another. If they don't, then they will lose everything. The question is how will we respond? Will you fall for this? Will you send your sons and daughters to fight in these corrupt wars with your eyes closed and your hand on your heart? Or will you at least speak out? This is the real variable. This is what will determine the final outcome. If you appreciate this message and if you want others to hear it, you can help by liking this video, adding it to your favorites, and sharing it to Facebook, Twitter, your blog, and by sending it to your friends via email. If you'd like more videos like this, subscribe to Storm Clouds Gathering on YouTube. Nuclear war to, to keep the dollar afloat. That's a real noble cause, isn't it? Get to know why all these wars happen. I mean, Gaddafi was trying to introduce a gold dinar, sound money. <laughs> and to think that I'm proposing nullification of legal tender laws so we can use silver as currency in one of these local towns in 2014. But that's another story. And hey, they're building it. They're ramping up their DHS presence there, too. Oh, my gosh. Bradley Manning verdict to be reached tomorrow. I don't have any faith in these kangaroo court systems that we have now where rule of law and basic morality are neglected for political ends. Judges aren't impartial most of the time anymore. They, t they take it from the political parties behind the closed doors. Now, the prosecutor called Manning an anarchist for leaking archives and sticks to the life in prison charge for aiding the enemy. The judge is refusing to acquit Manning of theft charges. They're going to send him away for life. And you know what? That means that there is no justice in this country. Talked about Adam Kokesh before, but in state news, here's a local one, a kind of a breaking story. Uh, probably not going to hear it anywhere else. In state news, locally here in Encinitas, California, water fluoridation was implemented in the Olivenheim Water District last Wednesday. Despite public outcry and the fact that forced medication is a violation of people's bodies, even if there is only one person speaking against fluoridation, speaking against having their health violated by force. The Olivenheim Municipal Water District went ahead and implemented water fluoridation. Naturally occurring fluoride already exists in water at below 0.1 parts per million and is generally harmless. Now, additive fluoride, which doesn't occur naturally in nature because of all the, you know, the minerals and everything like that, additive fluoride comes from industrial waste. It's a toxic waste byproduct that is sold for a profit to the pharmaceutical industry and water districts due to corporate-steered pseudoscience. They say there's all this science, but you know, just like Monsanto bribes Obama to appoint their former lobbyists to the FDA so they can rubber stamp GMO technology. Same thing with the fluoride. The scientific method is continuously corrupted by chemical lobbyists that bribe politicians to appoint people they like to the FDA, where these corporate shills approve things like fluoride and GMOs. The Olivenheim Municipal Water District wants to bring the levels of fluoride in the water to above 0.7 parts per million. And less than 0.1 is a safe level. 
And that's the level that naturally occurring fluoride exists, not chemical additives that are industrial waste byproducts. Now, here is part of the breaking news. In addition to that, they started it last Wednesday. Here is something that's really damning upon them. The breaking news is uh, that due to a Freedom of Information Act request on the Olivenheim Municipal Water District, citizens, the source of which I will not name, were able to uncover that Olivenheim Municipal Water District is using an improperly certified product from China. You know, of course, since it is industrial waste, this industrial waste is not coming from American industrial plants. It's coming from Chinese industrial plants. As if approved, certified sodium fluoride isn't toxic enough, the OMWD is using unapproved sodium fluoride. It is clear enough that these sadistic polluters care more about money and power than the environment, the people, their bodies, and the fact that businesses should not be subsidized and taxpayer dollars shouldn't be used to poison the taxpayers. And I hope they stop. But let me, uh, let me read you a, a, a quote from one of the people at Olivenhine Municipal Water District, just going to show just how corrupt these guys are. He says, quote, There is no possibility at this time to prevent the implementation of fluoride for the current fiscal year, July 1st, 2013 to June 30th, 2014, said John Carnegie, a member of the Olivenheim Municipal Water District Board of Directors. Translation, sit down and shut up while we let Big Pharma run this town over for the amount of time that they've paid to bankroll doing irreversible damage to our environment, ecosystem, rain cycle, people's health. Half the fluoride you consume in your life stays in your body for the rest of your life, and you didn't choose to do so. These corporatists, I don't even have a word to call them because it would get me fined by the FCC. I mean, I am livid at these guys, and they're just getting away with it scot-free. Well, I hope my real act of journalism right there, the unapproved fluoride thing, maybe gets some people to do something about it. Before more damage is done to the environment, before it gets up to that point seven, you can't reverse that. How the hell do you reverse that? I mean, there has to be a natural way to get fluoride out of the water. Not, you know, like I'm opposed to geoengineering, the fact that people want to add sulfur to the air to combat global warming. That's that's a hoax. That's just adding more chemicals, you know, just leave nature alone. You know, how about hemp cars? You know, increasing the amount of trees and produce and food and instead of lawns and, and you know, these fake suburban, you know, environments. You know, uh, how about restoring some natural habitats, you know, allowing people to grow farming land on their own properties rather than astroturf. Now, in national news, this is even more breaking and even more damning. Mysterious people have been spamming journalists and activists with child pornography. I mentioned Luke Rukowski of WeAreChange.org receiving an email from someone claiming to be a Bilderberg mole with pictures of the Bilderberg group from 2013. Smartly, Luke opened it up on a public computer at a Mac store or a library or something, and he didn't even open the attachments. He just saw the th thumbnails and that they were graphic child pornography. Just this week... It was revealed that Dan Johnson of Panda, People Against the National Defense Authorization Act, who was my guest two weeks ago on this show, along with 
Emmy-winning investigative journalist Ben Swan that Dan Johnson and uh, Stuart Rhodes of Oath Keepers were victims of such a malicious child porn setup. Now, an email was sent to Dan Johnson under the appearance of it being from Stuart Rhodes, but the email was slightly different. It came from a different address. It was fishy. He did the same protocol of opening a computer he didn't own and had, a, had his people looked at it, and it contained child porn. This would, if that would have been caught on their own computers, this that would impl- implicate both Rhodes and Johnson for child pornography, same as Rakowski. Uh, Luke Rakowski goes through, you know, travels internationally a lot, and if he could get his uh, computer seized and swiped by the TSA, they would find child porn, which is why someone wa- would want to try to plant child porn on his computer by saying they are Bilderberg Mole and they have pictures of the Bilderberg Group. After these incidents, the attacker, who is anonymous, sent follow-up emails mocking Rukowski, Johnson, and Rhodes. The handler of the child porn, the anonymous attacker, should be put in jail for handling the child porn, but conducting an investigation of such a person may open up more questions than have answers. Quote Silver Circle movie. And now I'm not saying it, it, it is definitely coming from somebody from the elite It could just be someone who doesn't like what they are doing and is from a low level and just wants to take them down. Or it could be from someone at the very top or a lackey working for them. Whoever it may be, journalists and activists are not safe in the land of the free. No longer safe from assassination by the the government. And no longer safe from having an anonymous attacker try to put child porn on their computers as a frame job to try to take down those who dare to tell the truth about how the world works and why the world should change. Additionally, uh, going down the rabbit hole here, the Department of Homeland Security bans music in the United States. Literally. Now, in totalitarian countries, music has always been made illegal to some extent. Now, we had the PMRC in the 1980s, Google, Frank Zappa, you know, PMRC, Al Gore, and Tipper Gore. This is why I hate Al Gore. You had to get your lyrics approved by the Communist Party. But then again, instrumental jazz was also had to get approved by the Communist Party. So any music that caused freedom in the minds of individuals was taboo. That is why I became a libertarian, because all roads to tyranny, communist, fascist, corporatist, whatever, it's all statist, they lead to bans on music and thus bans on freedom. When there is no music, there is no life. The DHS has officially banned people from freely playing music in public places. Now that's an inch, and they're going to take a mile. Of course, like most laws, it can't be blanketly enforced. There is no resources for that, so this will be selectively enforced to target certain individuals. I talked about this earlier. Concord, New Hampshire wants Department of Homeland Security to fund a Bearcat armored vehicle for, quote, domestic terrorists. Now, the city of Concord, New Hampshire, considers people that are sovereign citizens, free state project participants, and Occupy New Hampshire participants to be to be domestic terrorists. Now, I'm no longer a conspiracy theorist for claiming that the Department of Homeland Security wants to use their police state measures to crack down on people who have peacefully held political views. I support the Free State Project and run PSAs of them on my radio show. I'm a Ron Paul supporter. I like Occupy. 
Concord, New Hampshire will consider me a domestic terrorist, and, and they're going to want to use a tank on me if I lived there. But I live in Encinitas, and they already have a Bearcat tank, and they already take bribes and grants from the Department of Homeland Security. So where is this all going? With this and the NSA spying, we really do live in 1984 and can become the next, you know, one the somebody from the Free State Project can become the next Tiananmen Square guy when the tanks try to come in and mow down Ron Paul supporters with machine guns. And if he stands in front of that tank, you could bet in this day and age, he's just going to, the tanker is just going to run the guy over. And, you know, they maybe um, for my peaceful actions, you know, this Bearcat in Encinitas would try to do something to me or other activists that think alike for simply thought crimes. The Concord and Encinitas city councils are looking to set themselves up to be many war criminals. The blood of the innocent will be on their hands, all to maintain political power for the two-party system. These guys are evil. An African-American male suspected of wrongdoing shot on his own property. Now, similarly to the case of Trayvon Martin, Roy, Roy Middleton was on his own, was doing nothing wrong and, and was on his, on, on his own property when someone thought he was up to no good. The police surrounded him on his own property, and as he turned around to surrender, a hail of bullets went towards him from a literal firing squad of this police squad and almost killed the man. Well, those are the kinds of mistakes police can make. Now, unlike the Trayvon case, since it involves police being the perpetrators, justice will probably not be delivered, and you won't hear a peep from the mainstream media or the public. And the officers might even get a paid suspension, a.k.a. vacation. Now, scientists are confirming that pesticides kill bees. As a result of chemical exposure, honeybees are more likely to succumb to the lethal Nosema carinae parasite and die from the resulting complication. And uh, as Einstein said, if the bees go, we go. Now, Lindsey Graham is calling for a war with Iran by the end of the summer. I mean, this whole thing in Syria is a proxy ploy by the U.S. and Israel to bait Iran into a world war. The U.S. approves drones for civilian use. Wouldn't it be, would, I think it would be much better if technologies arise from the voluntary sector. I don't think drones would have ever arisen if it wasn't for the military-industrial complex. Without the military-industrial complex, we may never have had nuclear weapons, drones, car hacking technology, and an ind industry based on killing people that makes its money off of legal theft of taxation. Things that come from the military sector should be abolished and never be implemented into the civilian sector. Cut funding for weapons of death and see what technology actually arises. If drones were to arise from the voluntary sector, absent a military-industrial complex, I assume that they would be used for much more saintly uses than death. But I doubt it would be because uh, drones, uh, because people should be creating things that serve humanity and create life rather than destroy it. Pittsburgh SWAT sued for terrorizing a young family. Pennsylvania family has filed a lawsuit against the Pittsburgh Police Department claiming that two, two dozen SWAT team members raided their home and terrorized their two ch children in relation to for a prior incident involving an officer outside a local bar. Surveillance video captured in December 2010 outside a Pittsburgh bar shows Michael Murray, an off-duty police officer, trying to help a bartender escort an unruly patron out of the establishment. A fight breaks out in the process with another customer later identified as Mil William Moreno 
jumping into the fray and throwing Murray to the ground. The policeman was knocked unconscious, his leg broken and tooth chipped. Now, police always get try to you know do the bloodlust revenge thing, so Mariner, who would later be convicted of aggregated assault in 2012, left the bar to return home to his family. A new lawsuit filed by Moreno's wife alleges that on December 7, 2010, less than 24 hours after the bar fight, a team of at least 23 officers dressed in full SWAT gear detonated flash grenades at the Moreno family's door and forced their way into the house. Although the officers had a warrant and eventually evidently sought to arrest Moreno, they are accused of putting his family through 45 minutes of, quote, terrorization in the process. Now, police in Detroit are committing... Bank robbery, or no, not bank robbery, but just robbery legally driving in civilian vehicles. The first incident took place at a Sitco gas station near French and I-94 on Detroit's east side last Sunday. The clerk says two white men in a black Ford F-150 with police lights allegedly pistol whips customers pumping gas. The men stole cash and cell phones from their victims. Warning went out to be on the lookout for, quote, fake cops. But it turns out those officers were not fake after all. It appears the sergeant in this case was just driving his personal vehicle. MIT is preventing Secret Service files of the late Aaron Swartz from being released. There is a leaked report has a high civilian casualty in drone strikes overseas. Obama uh, issues an executive order mandating HIV testing. And a man with Down syndrome was killed by police as they were trying to haul him out of a movie theater death by, or it's ruled homicide by asphyxiation. In international news, Israel's prior plan continues illegal settlements, ethnic cleansing of the Bedouin, hope I'm pronouncing that population. Now, uh, I'm going to be re reviewing the movie Five Broken Cameras about Palestine for next week's show, uh, as well as I have Rabbi David Weiss of Jews United Against Zionism. And peace talks are deemed unneutral between Israel and Palestine, given the U.S.'s heavy foreign aid to Israel, willingness to use the CIA to engage in proxy wars on Israel's behalf to destabilize the entire region so that Israel and Saudi Arabia may dominate it. The U.S. does not have any credibility in brokering peace agreements between Israel and Palestine. The U.S. should cut off all foreign aid to all nations, friendly or not. The people of Israel would then be more free to overthrow the Zionist regime since U.S. money props up the Likud party's political machine. Most, in, A lot of Israel uh, citizens and Jews around the world oppose Zionism, apartheid, and neocolonialism. You know, thou shall not kill or steal, that, nor kill to steal land. And Palestinians even get elected in Israel, which is has more dissent against, uh, you know, the, the Israeli elite within the Israeli political system than is in the, you know, pro-Israel United States Congress, thanks to APAC intimidation. Now, there is a large minority in, in Israel, however, that does pose a danger as they are the ones who are eagerly enlisting in the IDF and tote guns for neocolonial efforts, or they get involved in the political system to promote a brutal agenda. And they are racist uh, you know, actors in the country who are responsible for atrocities against the Palestinian people. Facebook page that had a photo of Palestinian children in a tent, likely because their homes have been bulldozed, showed them holding peace signs, doing no harm to no one. Now, uh, the, a bunch of racist Zionists went on the 
page and went on a troll campaign with quotes like, quote, castrate them, burn them, bullet in their head, may you die garbage Arabs, amen. A hand grenade inside the tent gives you an idea of what happens when you have a, lar a large racist minority, given that the power of a majority can be wielded due to the power of a gun. So if a minority has a bunch of guns, they can act like a majority, you know, the, the 50 plus 1 percent of people can't vote away the rights of 49 percent, but if you have guns, you could do the same. And uh, the, the Israel is not making concessions for peace talks. They're likely to release 104 prisoners, but they're not going to stop the illegal settlements. The Bahraini government is upholding bans on protest, and Bahrain is heavily in bed with the United States. Tear gas canisters used on their own citizens were paid by United States taxpayer dollars. Now, Israel and Saudi Arabia team up, team up actually, to supply weapons to the Syrian rebels. So the U.S. has delegated that role to Saudi Arabia, and then I guess so has Israel. And now Morsi, uh, Egyptian president, has been uh, put under watch for allegedly conspiring with Hamas to break out of custody. But I find that argument to be fishy. Both Morsi and the military are puppets of the U.S. Morsi was brought, bought out with IMF loans to be favorable towards Israel. It doesn't strike me as plausible that Hamas uh, would want to come to the aid of Morsi if he was such a sellout to Western imperialism. I don't buy that story one bit. And today is Getty Lee's birthday, so happy birthday to Getty Lee. And uh, be sure to tune in next week, freethoughtmedia.org. Um, and I think about that about does it for the news. Uh, you're listening to KKSM AM 1320, as well as LRN.FM, the Liberty Radio Network. And KKSM After Hours is up next, as well as the Natalix show. Be sure to tune in next week. Take it easy, guys. KKSM Oceanside. You know, women are a complicated bunch. AM 1320. They're like grapes. That's all I got, because I said bunch, yeah. and then I thought of grapes. Radio Revolution.